APG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 372. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, at the controls as always. Today's show is recorded on the 25th of April, 2019. In today's episode, a German government jet suffers serious damage in an emergency landing. The FAA grounds all Cirrus vision jets over its angle of attack indicators, and a pilot tells air traffic controllers they're incompetent. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales into thinner air. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 372 is ready for pushback. Thanks, Radio Roger, for that great intro. And yes, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast slash talk show. And we're here today to cover aviation news and give our commentary and also answer your fantastic feedback. And here to help me with that, from her lakeside studio in South Carolina, she's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good afternoon. How nice to see you again. Very nice to see you as well. And I will do my best to help you. I have suddenly developed a case of the hiccups during Uh-oh. that intro. So I'm sure they're very doing what cute. I can to. Cute yes. hiccups. Cute hiccups. <laughs> Probably not. Okay. Well, there are some other people here. While you're hiccuping, they can help me. From a studio on the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London. Yes, it's Captain Nick. Well, evening, Jeff and uh, everyone else. Uh, lovely to be back on the show. Looking forward to a good one. Nothing much changes here, but I'm sure we'll have something new to discuss. Absolutely. And last but not least, joining us from his mobile studio at the Carolina Inn in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It is a barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. Captain Dana. Captain Dana. <laughs> Unmute. Calling Captain Dana. You're muted on the uh, hangout. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm sorry. I had. I don't know where it went. Uh, anyways, hey, great to be here at uh, the another fantastic episode of APG, and uh, get some guests I'll introduce in a little bit. And looking forward to another great show. Why don't you introduce your your guests right now? please. Why don't I? Yes. Well, uh, I am uh, flying with a, a, a very good buddy of mine that I've known for, we're discussing in the flight deck uh, earlier. I've known him for 15, 
uh, plus years uh, from my former Acme life at my regional carrier. And now we're getting to fly together today and enjoy uh, a, a trip that he picked up because I happened to be on it and it was an open time. So I introduce him. It's my buddy, Ken, and uh, he is going to say hello. Hey, guys. Thanks, Dana, for having us. Hey, Ken. Great to have you with us as well. Uh, also in the room, I've got a, uh, a uh, Army aviator uh, that I just found out, and he just showed up just before we started the show today, and he decided to come join us and watch the live taping of us here at, at APG. So I'm going to have him say hello here real quick, and uh, his name is Brett. Welcome, Brett. Thanks, Dana. Hey, crew. Just uh, saw Dana was on the schedule and uh, sent him a message and real easy to link up with him and excited to see the show and hang out a little bit with these guys tonight. Excellent. Well, I hope you enjoy the show. And if there's something that we're talking about that you think you can lend uh, your expertise with us, just please uh, don't hesitate to do so. Okay. He's, uh, he, and, and he's, uh, yeah, he'll, he okay. will absolutely uh, contribute if he can. All right. Very good. Very Both good. of them. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, um, let's see um, we, what we do here in the beginning of the show. If you're new to our our show, uh, we talk about what has been happening with us since our last episode. And uh, let's start with uh, you, Dana, since we're kind of focused on your mobile recording studio at this moment. Yeah, I've got uh, it all set up here and, and, and getting to enjoy some quality time with these guys. Um, that's uh, that's now and what happened in the past. Uh, been a couple of uh, interesting trips I just recently had. Um, just uh, came back from working six days in a row. Had one day off. Had a lot of weather to deal with in association with that. Of course, it's the standard reroute. Long days. Uh, uh, had uh, one almost fourteen-hour day to re reduce rest evening. Uh, and I lost an overnight in Indianapolis with one of our APG listeners that was going to meet up with me. Uh, so that I do apologize for the, uh, other things that we had going on. I had, uh, a, a taxi and out. I had a, a pretty, uh, interesting mechanical on the engine, any ice. And when that, um, that occurred, we taxi back to the gate cause we tried all of our known procedures, could not get it re resolved. And what made me feel actually real bad is, uh, a lot of the passengers were connecting to the once a day flights going to like places like Bon Air and San Jose, Costa Rica and so forth. But unable to fix the airplane real quick, the, the mechanic, local mechanic, which is a contract mechanic, uh, went out to the back of the airplane. All he had to do was manually close the valve. And what was very interesting is on the uh, outside of the valve on the, uh, the actual uh, part, usually there's inscription uh, engraved into the side of it where the valve position would be. Uh, this airplane did not have that inscription, so we could not figure out which position the valve was in hmm. to manually close it. So that was the real interesting part of the whole thing. So we took an extensive delay uh, due to that. Uh, we had to wait for mechanics to come in from another outstation because they were coming in for the earlier flight, both of us, the 6.30 and the no, excuse me, 6 a.m. and us, the 7.30. Both aircraft had to return to the gate on the same day. And we're not fun. That was in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Hmm. So um, they were able to ship us out about noontime-ish and get that all resolved. Uh, so that was the interesting thing there with, with the, that trip. I'm not going to go into details with all that. The other one really interesting is I had my first passenger uh, 
bad experience that I had to deal with. And that was in Sarasota uh, two days ago. About 4 o'clock in the afternoon, my flight attendant, when we were boarding, my flight attendant came up and said, Captain, uh, you know, I just had a passenger going on. It was kind of belligerent and, belligerent and mean to me. And, and my, you know, both of flight attendants were standing there. And she appeared to be uh, um, under the influence. So I said, well, you know, let's give, give the person a chance, see what's going on. Maybe she just was being discourteous and let her sit down and see how she acts. So we gave her about 20 minutes, and uh, the flight tank came back up and said, yeah, she's not improving at all. She's just being rude, and passengers around her are starting to complain. So I decided to do what I do every flight. Uh, I got up and went ahead and talked to my flight, I mean, to my passengers in first class. I almost said flight attendants, but that's, I also spoke to them. Um, and speaking to my passengers and making the presentations I would normally do and welcoming them, welcoming them on the aircraft and thanking them for their business, uh, she became quite belligerent towards me and slurring her words and not talking in a coherent sense and yelling stuff. Uh, I kind of looked at her, and I was like, okay. And I started a small talk conversation. And then she, oh, you know, I asked, and, you know, I just kind of threw it out there to see how she would react. I said, anybody around here rode, ride motorcycles? Oh, I love motorcycles, you know, in a, in, in a drunk way. Um, so at that point, I knew that we, we had to put a stop to it. And it's FAR part uh, 121-575 uh, or 525. I can't remember off the top of my head right now. So anyways, that's uh, I looked that up and uh, proceeded to get the customer service agents involved, and then she refused to get off the airplane. Well, now, due to the uh, events that we've talked about right here on this show, uh, you know, remember back to the uh, United Express incident where the, the police had dragged the uh, customer off the airplane. Well, if this passenger refused to get off the aircraft, we were now in a complete deplane situation. Fortunately, after the customer service manager had come over, the red, what we would call a red coat, uh, she had refused to come off the aircraft. Uh, the station manager was fortunately able to talk her off the aircraft. And by the way, folks, this is a first-class passenger, and it's the first-class passengers that were complaining about her. And, of course, those are the higher-value customers that we care about here at the airline. That's why she was a low-class customer. Yeah, well, I would say so. So uh, come to find out, oh, so the police uh, were called. They were in the jetway, and we were ready to deplane the aircraft if need be after the last attempt to ask her kindly to get off the aircraft. Uh, come to find out that she had a coffee cup in her hand, and in the coffee cup was a entire cup full of wine, which at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I don't think she needed to have in her hand. Uh, especially bringing it on our aircraft uh, against regulations, obviously. So uh, we were able to get her removed, and, of course, uh, away to Atlanta we went, about uh, 15 minutes behind schedule. But uh, So that was that was quite an interesting interesting event, uh, dealing with all that coordination. First time I've had to, you know, uh, convene the security team, get everybody involved, uh, coordinate with the uh, all different departments and make that command decision that this person is uh, not fit to fly on our aircraft. Well, I'm glad you didn't have to get the, uh, the Dr. Dow, um, treatment on her. Yeah, no, um, I'm very happy that did not happen. <laughs> so I'm just yeah. curious, Jana, were many of the other passengers filming what was going on? What are, 
Apparently so. There were several of the other passengers that were filming. Um, as a matter of fact, passenger pointed out to the flight, and as they were getting off the aircraft, once we got into Atlanta, um, that they had filmed the entire thing and said how great of a job she did. Okay. It was very well handled, apparently, as far as people were concerned. And uh, uh, I felt uh, you know bad about it, but I think this person clearly has bigger problems than worrying about being drunk in a seat on an airplane in first class at 4 o'clock in the afternoon than, uh, than what's leading on. So obviously there's a big problem there. Let's not have a straw poll about who hasn't been drunk at four o'clock in the afternoon, please. Yeah, well. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> not with stick. your own glass of wine that you have brought. Well, who uh, else is glass of wine, wine you going to get drunk with? <laughs> as far as you know, that uh, this is actually just some kind of a soft drink or a Coca-Cola oh, product in here. I, I was going to still taco. I was going <laughs> to say <laughs> it is only four forty-seven in the afternoon, East Coast time right now, and I've got a, a Guinness draft stout. Uh, thanks very much to Brett's uh, contribution to the show this afternoon. Ooh, very nice. Um, so we uh, thank you very much, Brett. Uh, so we are drinking uh, a, a, an adult beverage at 4.47 in the afternoon, but not stumbling completely belligerently drunk, mind Brett, you. Just don't give him too well, much. Well, that's a matter of opinion, Dana. <laughs> uh, Tommy, does that Guinness have the widget in it? That, uh, yes, makes it does. Tommy, oh, it makes it gorgeous. It's lovely stuff. It, it, it's awesome. He he did very well in his selection of, <laughs> of adult beverages. Very nice, very nice. Anything else, Dana? I, well, hey, we had a question for you. When we were recording last week's show that you weren't with us on uh, doing the feedback extra, we were looking at some of your tweets and we were looking at some of the screenshots of the weather. And uh, it looks to me like uh, you had quite a quite a bit of weather you had to kind of work your way through or around when you were going from Savannah to Atlanta. Is that the case? Yeah. Uh, you know, I wanted to keep it short for you today, but I'll, I mm -hmm. will talk a little bit about that because the normal flight time uh, and uh, let me start back at the gate. We call air traffic control uh, with our diligence of 20 minutes prior to departure time and asked for our flow. And f amazingly enough, they gave us no flow after we had the, the aircraft, the aircraft, the airport was shut down for a while, gave us no flow uh, and uh, just gave us uh, control takeoff time. We pushed back and just as we're about to start the engines, we got the notification from dispatch that the uh, airport in Atlanta was being shut down again. So we sat out there waiting and waiting and I, and I, it was going to be an hour uh, wait on the airplane for just an update. Mm -hmm. uh, dispatch talked me out of going back into the gate and actually it worked out pretty well because they ended up delaying us uh, about 40 minutes. They gave us a reroute instead of us going all the way down through the panhandle of Florida and back up on the west side. Um, they sent us up over Greenville Spartanburg and came down the northeast quadrant uh flying time normally between savannah and atlanta roughly 30 to 35 ish minutes give or take a couple here and there uh the planned flight time one hour and 33 minutes between augusta and and uh, atlanta so we had to uh, navigate our way around all that and then ultimately did end up having to hold going into atlanta and that's what started our entire day off we got into atlanta I think the normal block between the two is about an hour and 15-ish, hour and 20 minutes at the most, maybe a little less. 
Um, and it took us two and a half hours from the time we pushed back until the time we got to Atlanta. So we ended up uh, way behind schedule as a result of that. But that, that weather was uh, atrocious. That, that spawned, I think, a few tornado, tornadic, or a lot of tornadic activity on the east coast of the U.S., uh, significant impact on uh, flights and delays all over the place. So did you make it to Pittsburgh or Indianapolis or where, wherever nope. it was you were nope, supposed to go? That's where the reroute happened. Ah. And instead of going to Indianapolis, I ended up in Louisville, Kentucky, which oh, okay. which was uh, going to be a good thing because the Embassy Suites is really nice. Mm-hmm. You know, they have that uh, happy hour from 530 to 730, free food, free drinks. Guess what time we got to the hotel? 730. Seven twenty nine. <laughs> yeah, I was so I was so mad. I was so fit to be tired. I was like, "This is like the absolute ending to perfect day." And uh, you know, uh, I didn't mention it, but my FO on that trip, he was an F fourteen and F eighteen driver, and a fan had had one of the best attitudes of any any fighter pilot I ever have ever been around. Uh, just really a pleasant guy to be around. Real good pilot, competent, and you know. If I'm going to have to do battle with somebody, that's the type of guy I want to do battle with. He that's just kind of unusual. F-18 guys are usually jerks in my yeah, we, experience. We yeah, we don't like They're them. They're not very nice. Yeah. yeah, get lost, you lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nah, I did tell him about Captain Nick. So. All right. Well, yeah, what, right, do I, what do I care? <laughs> <laughs> we know you care, and we care, too. Okay. Uh, well, let's move. Let's jump over to Captain Nick, because we care about him, and what he's been doing. <laughs> so well, uh, not a lot going on over here, Jeff. I'm uh, still trying to get my back fit. Um, uh, the specialist has given me three options. I can have a lot of metal work put in my back and mm. have it fused. I can go through uh, a series of uh, um, injections into the facet joints and the damaged discs of which there are three. Um, one of which has split. And uh, that would take um, several weeks because he would do the one at a time and it would take at least six injections, he said, to cover the whole area. So uh, all of that would take time. Or he said, you can wait four to six weeks and it'll probably get better on its own. <laughs> I've, uh, I've opted for the four to six weeks, it'll get better on its own uh, option since nothing was going to really be much quicker than that. Um, and uh, I'm just waiting, and it is starting to get a little better. Uh, I'm coming off one of the major drugs I've been on, but I have to wean myself off that. Apparently, you have withdrawal symptoms, Mm. Uh, and uh, some of the stiffness and pain is starting to return, but it's manageable at the moment, so I can't sit still for very long. I'm fine if I'm moving. Uh, So at the moment, sitting still in an airplane, flying it, is obviously out of the question. Uh, time's running out. Uh, I'm pretty certain I won't make uh, the Atlanta trip. Uh, oh. I, I haven't written it off entirely because you never know. In yeah. life, you never know. But I'm really not um, banking on it. And so uh, I think we're going to have to make Oshkosh uh, the big goodbye. So, Ooh, that sounds yes. like fun. Hey, it would be fun. One of, our, um, one of our listeners sent in some advice for you, Captain Nick, regarding your back. Oh, really? Yeah. Here, let me play this uh, audio for you. This is Miami Hick. You never know who you run into the, at the airport nowadays. See all sort of folks. But I ran into the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger getting on a flight, so I stopped him to record a little inspiration, get well message for Captain Nick. So take it away, Arnold. This is Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'm here with my good friend, Miami Hick. 
We're here to pump you up, Captain Nick. You need to get down and stretch your back and get to the airbus. Get to the airbus. Do it now. Do it now. Who is your daddy? I am your daddy. You what your daddy says for you to do. Your daddy says to put the cookie down and you need to get to the airbus. So what are you waiting for? Do it now. Okay. Right. A little harsh. A little harsh I mean, advice. that's exactly yeah. the advice I would have given as a medical professional. Put so. the cookie down. <laughs> well, thank you Quite very fun. much indeed, uh, Arnold and uh, Miami Hick, uh, for that magnificent piece of uh, consultation. Uh, I, I will get to the Airbus immediately and see if things improve. <laughs> well, I thought you'd appreciate oh. that advice. Uh, that was absolutely Brilliant. I've, I've never met uh, Mr. Schwarzenegger, governor, ex-governor Schwarzenegger mm. uh, in person, sadly. Uh, he sounds like quite a character, doesn't he? Yeah, maybe he'll be at Oshkosh. You never know. <laughs> Apparently you run into him in all kinds of places. Really? These days. He would probably uh, complain a bit about my uh, core strength. So uh, that <laughs> might actually be some do me some good if he helped me build up my core. Hey, are, are there going to be any... Um, any uh, meetups in uh, your neck of the woods uh, anytime in the next, uh, let's say, month or so? Nah, well, if I don't get flying again, I fully intend to take advantage of the Duxford meetup. So the uh, Imperial War Museum at Duxford, the aerodrome, fantastic aviation uh, museum. Lots of the exhibits uh, are fly. I don't know how many will be flying on that day, but it's uh, the 13th, Sunday, I believe, Sunday the 13th. And uh, to be fair, I'm hijacking this because this is a PTUK and um, plane safety podcast meetup, and I'm going to try and turn it into an APG meetup instead. So uh, if any of our listeners uh, who uh, want to come along, and uh, if I can, uh, I will certainly be there. I believe uh, it's the 12th, which is the Sunday. Sunday the 12th. My apologies. You're right. I was due to go to Atlanta on the 13th. So the APG going to be crashing the party. We are, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm hoping that Pilot Pip is going to pop by and pick me up in a flying machine. Ooh. Yeah, it'll be a lot nicer of the, the 45 minutes in a flying machine than two, hour, two and a half hours in a car. So uh, my back will appreciate that, Pip. If the weather holds out and we can organize that, that'll be brilliant. Very good, very good. All right. Uh, Miss Stephanie, have you been uh, doing anything interesting uh, of recent? Yeah, actually. So last weekend was the Easter holiday. Uh, happy Easter to everyone. Um, and after we recorded our, what day did we do that feedback extra? Friday? I think it was Friday. It was Friday. It was off of work. Yes. Um, and plans again to do a little bit of flying with Armand, speaking of PTUK, and his lovely wife, Megan. And we were planning on doing that on Saturday. Saturday did not work out because the uh, the weather did not clear up from Friday in time to do any uh, real VFR flying. It was really kind of nasty and windy and gross still. So we pushed it back to Sunday, which was Easter. Um, but hey, we were planning on going in the morning. It's uh, like a nice time for flying. Most people are probably in church, <laughs> um, as uh, perhaps we should be. Um, but anyway, you we... Can, Pray inside an airplane. In yeah, fact, yeah. It, a lot it, of people do. A lot of people pray <laughs> when I'm at the controls. <laughs> so anyway, it seemed like a a good idea, and actually the weather looked beautiful uh, that morning. So got up and drove out to our um, Armando's uh, on the other side of town from me. So 
his local uh, airport out there. He had gotten checked out in one of their uh, Piper Arrows, which was very nice. So uh, he rented it for the the uh, the morning, the afternoon, and I drove up to meet them, which was about an hour away from me. So not super close, but that's all right. And uh, our plan was to fly over to Asheville and um, get a rental car and go out to eat and then do a little Sunday brunch and then get back in the airplane and fly back to um, Lincoln County. And we got in the air and discovered that, uh, you know, we're looking at the forecast and the weather and obviously it planned it pretty well. And the weather was supposed to clear up over Asheville and we had given it plenty of time and it never really did clear as much as it was supposed to. So it was still kind of marginal VFR, uh, 1800 foot ceilings or so. Um, we're like, well, well, that's okay. We'll go take a look at it. Um, cause it's really just the weather's that way. The clouds are that way. If we need to, we'll just turn around and come back. It's all nice and fine over here. Not forecast to get it any worse. And uh, we got over there and, and really we could have gotten in VFR. The problem is that because the ceiling was still kind of low, um, most of the the traffic coming in was on, uh, they were all on instrument flight plans. So they were all flying the ILS and it's a single runway there in Asheville. And we would have been number five behind the traffic they already had, not counting anyone else who might've come in at that time. And it just seemed like that was probably not a great thing for us to try to be mixing in with all of that at the moment. The, uh, <laughs> I could almost kind of hear it when we checked in with the uh, with approach. It was like, "You want to come in VFR?" Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> really? Don't don't enter the enter the Charlie yet. <laughs> Stand by. <laughs> okay. Um, so we decided, you know what? We'll just we'll just go back. It's been a nice day for flying. Um, hey, there's another airport along the way. We'll stop in at Kilo Foxtrot Quebec Delta, I believe it was, which is Rutherford County. Um, I was flying. Armando did a little quick looking on four flight, said they had a restaurant. We tried to call them, but we didn't really have any signal of where we were in the the airplane. Um, but he thought he heard someone answer before the signal quit. So we're like, well, maybe someone's someone's there. If not, we'll just, you know, physiologic break, get back in the airplane and then go back back home. So we landed um, kind of a typical, you know, North Carolina, small airport, uh, one FBO building. As we're taxiing by, there's two older gentlemen sitting out front on their rocking chairs, just kind of watching the day. <laughs> and we park the plane and wander over and we find this cute little like, you know, one room, one table inside, couple picnic benches outside restaurant, the 57 Alpha Cafe. And it happened to be open on Easter Sunday at wow. like 11 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I, I'm so, one of those, those two old guys who are playing banjos. You know, they they very well may have been. <laughs> I would not have been surprised. It is kind of Appalachia up there, getting close to, to being in the mountains. Anyway. Not quite. Uh, not quite, no. Yeah. It's it's just on the well, no, it's it's pretty close. Oh. Uh, yeah. Um What was the food like? So the food was great. It um oh, wow. so you had two two menu well, he had one big menu board, but one side of the menu said for gringos. <laughs> <laughs> older Caucasian gentleman running the, the place. Um, and it was cheeseburger, hamburger, you know, the usual $100 hamburger fare. Mm -hmm. And then the other side was all this like Tex-Mex stuff. So green chili burrito, quesadillas, Ooh. nachos. Uh, so Yum. I think Armando and I both had the uh, green chili burrito and Megan had some quesadillas and it was, it was really nice. It was a nice, nice day outside still. The sun was shining there. So we sat out on one of the picnic benches and had our Easter brunch of Tex-Mex food at a little, you know, off the grid airport in Rutherford County, North Carolina. And you'll never forget Excellent. it. I love the photograph uh, you posted. Uh, tell me, uh, has what was Meg's B-sign for? <laughs> 
I think really it should have been the, <laughs> the yes, other this way. No, no, as you, as, you, as you rightly pointed out, she was uh, clearly upset that we relegated her to the vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Armando stuck an extra camera on her headset so that he could record additional video footage. Uh, so hopefully he'll have that all compiled. So you, so you guys didn't even give her one leg up front? Uh, no. <laughs> That's mean. You didn't let her put one one of her legs up front? Well, well, yeah. so she's got plans to to uh, to start working on her private pilot's license here. Right. So she will be doing a lot of upfront flying. Excellent. Very good. Sounds like an awesome, awesome time. Yeah, it, it was great. And my thanks to Armando for kind of putting that all together because it was uh, the aircraft he rented. And uh, we'll be doing hopefully some more of it in the near future. All right. What are you holding up to, Jeff? Well, because we're talking about Armando, can I go next? Or you still have some other stuff to talk about, Steph? No, that's it. Okay. Oh, yeah. Actually, I do have one more thing. Okay. I almost forgot. This was this was like the icing on the, the cake of this trip because it was a wonderful trip. So we get back to um, to Lincoln County and we're returning the, the airplane and uh, back into the, uh, the flight school or the FBO. And there's a, a gentleman behind the counter there and he had a dog with him. And the dog starts going crazy when we come in, just really wants to come out from around behind the counter and come say hi to us and... Uh, you know, do all the things that dogs do. And he starts uh, yelling at the dog. Hey, Jake, Jake. And we're like, Jake. He's like, yeah, Jake, like from State Farm. From State Farm. <laughs> he actually said that. <laughs> she sounds hideous. I know. Well, she's a guy. So. Yeah, so. But that's, that's what the guy said. He's like, yeah, Jake yeah, from Jake, State Farm. From State Farm. <laughs> Not Jake from Salt Lake, though. Not Jake from Salt Lake. Hmm. This is Jake from State Farm. Okay. That's funny. <laughs> Okay, the, I was holding up this on the video. Uh, you can see this uh, nice uh, program. And this is the retirement ceremony in honor of Senior Master Sergeant Armando J. Carrion. I was reading that backwards because I'm looking at the video in my, in my screen window, whatever. Um, and I forgot to tell you about this on, I think, the last two shows. This is on the 12th. Of April, and by the way, uh, he's been Armando has been out there on all kinds of aviation shows. He's really making a big splash out there. Um, the one I just finished uh, listening to uh, yesterday was a, a not the latest uh, Airplane Geeks, but the one before that. He was the special guest, and uh, so I do recommend that you listen to that. And anyway, I uh, flew down to. Uh, actually over to Raleigh Durham and then rented a car drove down to uh, Fayetteville North Carolina and uh, attended the uh, retirement ceremony at the uh, US Army Airborne and Special Operations Museum I have to tell you though that that kind of confused me cuz I'm thinking I thought he was in the Air Force and why are we doing this in Fayetteville at this US Army Airborne but I guess maybe the special operations part of it was reason why cuz that's what uh, uh, Armando was involved with mostly. Anyway, if you want to hear more about his amazing career in the U.S. Air Force, please listen to that show that uh, starring Armando. Carry on. I um, thought it was so lovely that Armando went to the trouble of sending me an invitation, even though there was no chance I could possibly get to it. Well, Captain Nick really sent him a very, very nice and entertaining letter. But, uh, I, yeah, I did. I did send my apologies in the formal way in which I was trained uh, in the Royal Air Force some forty something years ago. <laughs> he was. Uh, I mean, he had that letter uh, on display in the uh, auditorium where his. Oh wow! Really? Was. Yep. <laughs> Underneath oh, a uh, a bomb 
All right. Well, <laughs> actually, it was a, a shell. It wasn't a bomb. What, what would you right. call that? A, uh, an artillery shell or something like that? Yes. Could anyway. be. So we had a great time. The ceremony was great. Uh, brought me back to my military days and all the, you know, all the ritual and pomp and circumstance and everything else. Guys, uh, looking, uh, guys and gals looking very sharp in their uniforms. And um, and then of course it was even better after we had a reception over at uh, what was it called Dirt Bag Ales I think Dirt Bag don't, Brewing don't Dirt Brewery or something I didn't know. no it was Dirt Bag Dirt Bag Dirt I think it's Dirt Bag okay. which yeah. describes Armando to a T I have to say <laughs> anyway just kidding Armando um, so I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that I am sorry I didn't mention it you know the right after it happened it just pff, slipped my mind as so many things do these days. Uh, we're glad you could be there as our uh, representation. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, the rest of us could not make it. Oh, no, sorry about that. One. The um, on uh, I think it was a uh, was it PTUK? Yeah, on PTUK, not the latest one, maybe the one before. Uh, we uh, actually Armando, um, we connected us while they were uh, taping or not taping, uh, recording their show live, and uh, so I don't know exactly where that is in the timeline of that show, but we were on the show, uh, on location in the dirt bag brewing uh, company. <laughs> I place. think I've already heard it. So I think yeah. that one sound, I need to look at it and see how, how embarrassing I was. You were incredibly embarrassed. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's right. We expect nothing less. Thank you. Ah. All right. Um, meetups, uh, had one just, um, day before yesterday in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, uh, I recorded a little bit of audio at, well, I'm going to try to tell you where. Hey, folks, we're at Anthony G's in, excuse me, take two. We're at some place in some city in Oklahoma. Hey, folks, we're at Albert G's Barbecue in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, soon we'll be talking to, actually, I'm going to start with this person who helped organize this meetup, because Larry said, hey, I noticed you're going to be in Tulsa, Jeff, uh, in, uh, in April, and we should probably do a meetup. And I said, that sounds like a great idea, Larry. Why don't you coordinate that? <laughs> and so he did, and he did a wonderful job. Now, I first have to tell you that when Brent, my favorite F.O., uh, and I were uh, flying into Tulsa today. We pulled up to our gate, and in the window, I could see the sign. And I'm looking at the sign right now. It's here in the uh, special room at Albert G's Barbecue in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it says, Welcome to Tulsa, Captain Jeff. And I bumped uh, Brent's shoulder, and I said, Hey, look at that. Look at that. So I got a special sign from Larry. He was standing there taking some video of us uh, pulling into the gate. Anyway, without further ado, let me have Larry say something to the ABG community. Hi there, community. This is Larry the Geezer. Uh, we actually fell a little short of expectations. I wanted to have a uh, <clears throat> water cannon salute and a brass band, and we got the sign up, but the brass band couldn't get through the metal detector. And the fire, fire cannon salute, that didn't work out well, so I was going to meet you with a kazoo and a water pistol. But that <clears throat> couldn't have a gun at the airport, so best I could do is we got actually from uh, Frank Relja, the assistant deputy director of the airport. He gave you the rubber band, so keep that and treasure it. And I, I have a, a photo of it, and uh, I will treasure it always. 
I'm, I'm very impressed with the effort that you made uh, organizing the band, the, the rubber band. Best we could do, but we're really pleased to have you here. Hopefully this will be the first of many Tulsa meetups. I hope so as well. And I'm glad you didn't do the uh, water cannon salute because I would have thought that it was my surprise retirement party. So I'm glad that uh, you didn't do that. No. Uh, missed, missed, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to miss Captain Nick's retirement. We, we're planning on going to Atlanta, but the sad thing is I'd have to fly on that other airline with the you know, American flag on the back. <laughs> well, that's okay. I don't think uh, you'll have to worry about it. I don't think we're going to have one of those uh, parties in Atlanta, sadly. But you never know. You know, we can always hope for a miracle. No, that's, well, uh, that's about it for me. But anything we mess up, you can fix and post. That's what I always say. It's not always true. Uh, we are really, really excited about having a celebrity here uh, uh, from the band Journey, Steve Perry. All right. Well, um, he's a lot younger looking than I thought. Um, and you used to have a lot longer hair. I wasn't quite expecting that introduction. But uh, all right. Yeah, sorry to disappoint. Yeah, it's just Steve from Tulsa, not Steve Perry from Journey. Um, Happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter to APG crew. Uh, Jeff, thanks for being here. Brent and Larry for putting it all together. Thank you very much, and uh, see you next time around. It was a very nice meeting you, Steve, from Tulsa, not Steve Perry from Journey. A little disappointed about that. Next in line is Josh. Hi, I'm Josh from Tulsa, or from Jenks, I guess, technically. Uh, just saw this on Slack and decided I'd come out and really appreciate Larry the geezer organizing this and for jeff and everybody coming out it's great i hope uh, like he said i hope we do it again i do as well uh, it was a lot of a lot of fun and uh, so here's my first officer brent he's the guy that um, i always tell you guys about uh, we our thing is to always go to or we try to go and get good barbecue or at least barbecue uh every time we lay over somewhere and uh you know i think we've managed to do that pretty well we've had really really good barbecue and we've had very, very mediocre. mediocre, yeah, barbecue. This is pretty good barbecue here today, I think. What did you think, Brent? I thought it was really good. I had the standard. Jeff can tell you what that is. Yeah, when the waitress came up and said, what, do you, what would you like? And I said, I could order for him because I know he's going to say pulled pork, baked beans, and potato salad. Correctamundo. And it was very good here today. Although we were uh, in uh, Charleston last night and we went to the Swig and swine i think and um you didn't uh, order baked beans and well you did order baked beans but you didn't get uh potato salad that's right they had corn pudding on the menu so we gave that a try it was more corn than it was pudding but <laughs> it ate just the same <laughs> but i think uh i think you'd agree with me that uh, the, the barbecue the best part the dessert yes well after we walked 20 minutes to get it <laughs> Yeah, well, we had to walk off some of the calories that we had consumed and we were going to consume at Jenny's Ice Cream. Yes, with that salty caramel and gooey butter cake is what I had. And I had the salty peanut butter with chocolate flecks and something chocolate. Like, I don't know. It's too long ago for me to remember, but I can say... Without hesitation, that the uh, barbecue here at Albert G's beat the swig and swine that we had yesterday. And then finally, we have Paul Shelton, and uh, he's going to talk to our community right now. Okay. 
Hi, this is Paul Shelton. I'm a relative newcomer to the uh, podcast, but I am totally hooked. Uh, can't wait to listen every week. I'm a former employee of American Airlines slash the spinoff Sabre Holdings as a IT guy. And uh, oh, American Airlines, sometimes known as Apex, I guess. Uh, I'm sorry, did I just reveal the code? Ajax. 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 Apex, Ajax. I like Apex better. Okay. Anyway, I'm having a great time here, enjoying the podcast, enjoying the uh, AP Cree, A, A G P crew. Uh, I, I really love the podcast and uh, having a great time. Glad to finally meet Captain Jeff and his uh, FO and the uh, others here tonight. So uh, having a good time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for coming out. And that's it. We, uh, as I said, we had a great uh, meetup here in Tulsa. Look forward to doing it again many times in the future. Now, back to you in the studio, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, we had a great time. And thank you, Larry, for organizing that and uh, taking all the nice pictures. Oh, we have more pictures. I was uh, putting up a few of them on the uh, on the video. So if you're uh, interested, you can watch the video or you can look in the show notes. I'll put all the photos that uh, Larry took. And he also funded he picked up the tab for everybody at wow what a great guy uh, so Very now, uh, which which one was he he was, was the he one the... in the middle wearing the hat that you want yeah i i want that hat that looks like <laughs> that's just a hat i want Captain that Nick is... has hat envy yeah Captain Nick I... also has a very large collection of hats yeah but that one. that would be the pinnacle that that's an apg it. hat that because that's the only one in the world that is a unique hat. Yeah. I, we need to talk to him about maybe getting some made in quantity. Hey, uh, Larry, hey, Larry I'll, I'll come. I'll bid. Well, I don't know if I'll ever be able to actually bid it, but I'll try to come to Tulsa. If you just do the uh, do the sign in the window, that was just fantastic. <laughs> I love that. It welcome was. Tulsa, and awesome, the sign will actually. say, welcome to Tulsa, Captain Jeff. Yeah. I mean, it'll be crossed out. Dana. <laughs> Dana, if, if British <laughs> Airways can land at Edinburgh by mistake, I'm sure you can land at Tulsa. Well, yeah, we, we go there. It's just it's a matter of whether I can actually get there anymore. I wouldn't imagine that that would be one of the top of the list of places for people to go, although I love Tulsa, actually. but Well, the best thing I can get is flying dog poop out of Hong Kong on a 172 of these days. So I don't <laughs> okay. have much choice in what I can fly. <laughs> I haven't done that one yet. a job in a 172. <laughs> Oh, anyway, well, at, the, well, at, the, at the rate of the increase of the parking of our of our lovely bird, it may not be long before I'm not even on it anymore. Anyway, it's just found out yeah. some interesting information. So we're hanging on, though. We're hanging on, hanging on for now. Yeah. Um. So this next trip I do next week, uh, I believe it's on. I think it's Monday. Uh, the 29th of April at Q39. Um, go ahead and uh, have Tom tell us quickly about that. Hello, APG community. This is Tom from Columbia, Missouri, and I'm letting you know that we are coordinating a meetup with Captain Jeff on Monday, April 29th. It's going to take place at Q39 in Westport. The address is 1000 West 39th Street in Kansas City. That is in the Westport area. Captain Jeff will be coming into town that afternoon, and we will have a start time of 5.30. I have posted this information 
in Slack under the meetup section. I've also included my phone number in there if you would like to contact me that way. Uh, we hope to see you there, and I would appreciate if you would uh, let me know if you can make it so we can save you a seat. Captain Jeff, we're looking forward to hosting you again in Kansas City. We're glad you're coming out to visit us, and we look forward to it once again on April 29th, Monday at 5.30 at Q39. Hope to see you all there. APG crew, thanks for all you do, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Tom. Look forward to meeting up with you again and others in Kansas City um, in just a few days. So there you go. And if you want to keep track of where the crew is and where we have meetups planned, please find the APG community calendar on the APG website and or Slack. And at the end of the show, we'll have Hillel tell you how you can join our Slack team. And... <laughs> thank you Steph sorry you weren't supposed to be distracted by that <laughs> we have some back channel chat and Steph decided that she'd take a picture of herself a selfie it, it really went to other people but I thought you guys would enjoy it as uh, well I, I, it was a, it's a very nice photo of you Steph yes, thank you thank we, we, we're enjoying yeah. that including, including the local yeah. guests they have in the room Steph is st sticking you're, her tongue out at you're somebody welcome. yeah Okay. I'm sorry. I really did try to ignore that, but I couldn't help it. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Oh, no. It was good. It was good. So what we're going to do is we're going to skip. Uh, we're not skip. We're going to postpone the um, coffee fund segment, and we're going to put that between news and feedback if I remember or if the uh, producer remembers to uh, remind me of it. And we're going to move right on now. Unless anybody has anything else to add for the intro, let's move on to news. Stand by for news. Let's start with the first item in our news folder, and this was an incident that occurred in Berlin, I believe. A German government jet was uh, took off. I guess they had some some uh, maintenance work done on the Bombardier Global 5000 jet, and it had been there for several weeks of maintenance. And uh, I guess they were doing a test flight. And as soon as they got airborne, the pilots reported serious flight control issues. And uh, let's see, they reached uh, 6,000 meters, which is about 20,000 feet. And they came back in to land the jet. And there are several photos. If you haven't already seen them, uh, we'll put them in our show notes. But you can see very close to the ground this Bombardier Global 5000 uh, in about uh, 50, 60 degrees of bank or so. Um, uh, right and left and they uh, actually in one of these photos it looks like about yeah at least 60 degrees of bank and only about 100, 100 feet off the ground something like that maybe not even that and uh, they said that uh, uh, invest oh they uh, finally got it on the ground and uh, apparently the airplane suffered uh, considerable structural damage uh, buckling and compression damage on both wings 
and uh, also on the fuselage itself. And uh, they uh, and the investigators have tentatively pointed the blame at incorrect adjustment of wing flaps. And I put in there, uh, I don't think that's really what they mean, uh, used for both braking and flight control. So I'm assuming what they're really talking about are the spoilers. And Bombardier calls them multifunction spoilers. They have four panels on each wing. And if you look at uh, at least one of those photos, the, fir- the first one that I see there, the right wing, uh, you can see the spoilers are, flight spoilers are pretty much fully extended, and it's in a pretty steep right bank. And you'll also notice that the rudder is like full deflection to the left. So I think that's the attempt, uh, the pilot's attempt to keep the airplane from rolling any more than it's doing in this fo- photo. So Yeah, that photo there quite close to the ground yes very close to the ground much closer than 100 feet yeah in that case yeah that was maybe what 30 feet yeah something like that that. you're very close to the ground it looks like he's about to take out that pole it's right on the edge of the runway there that looks terrifying quite honestly and to have that level of uh control handling problems i uh, have to take my hand off to the crew for getting it down in one piece albeit damaged and at least everyone was safe Geez, it uh, sounds like a really nasty incident. I'm wondering if this is another case, and we've been seeing these qu- quite a bit lately, it seems, where they did some maintenance work to the flight control system and maybe they like reverse connected everything. I don't know. I would hope not. Yeah. Because these systems, we, we should have learned by now that these systems need to be absolutely foolproof in the fact that it's impossible. You make it impossible to misconnect in the wrong sense the flight controls by making all the connectors uh, not fit. Uh, we've we've learned that uh, I would hope decades ago, but uh, so I guess not. Oh yeah, exactly. I guess not. Because hmm. what, what it was a, it was an Embraer um, one ninety, I believe, um, in uh, Portugal that they were on a test flight and they. I don't know how they got the darn thing on the ground, but they somehow managed not to crash the jet. And in that case, I think the ailerons were misrigged. And so when they put in a right wing deflection or a right wing turn in the control, it actually did the opposite. And that I can't imagine how difficult it must be to get that in your brain that, oh, everything is backwards. Yeah. 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 Not saying that that's what happened here, but... Apparently, they're looking at the. Uh, now, Logan in the chat room asks, "Wouldn't you notice that on flight checks or flight control check before taxi?" So, in small aircraft, you can look out and see what you're actually doing to the aileron and the the rudder and the elevator when you move yeah. the flight controls. However, I, in a larger jet, I ahead. don't think on. I don't know. I've never been on the Bombardier Five Thousand Global, but it's a pretty swept back wing, and it's pretty far mm-hmm. back, and. I'm thinking that you can't see the flight control surfaces from the cockpit, but I don't know. Maybe they have some kind of instrumentation yes. that would indicate. Yeah. If it's anything like the CRJ 200, 700, and 900, which is, you know, is. made by the same company, yeah. they do have the flight in, you know, ICAS system where you can actually see the position of the controls uh, when you select through the screens. So when you do your flight, when you do your flight control tests, you can actually select that screen and see the positions that they're matching your positions that you're commanding. Is that a requirement to do that? When you're doing your uh, flight control airlines, check? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you have to do a flight control check. I don't know right. if we're, you know, at, 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 in, in the corporate world, I mean, 
why wouldn't you? Especially if you're going to be doing a test flight, you'd certainly want to make sure that everything was connected properly. The other yeah. question I have about that, Dana, is, you know, what is what is that sensing, that ICAS thing? Is it actually sensing the real control movement or just what the input is to those? I don't know. Probably the real control. It's, a, it's, it's actually, it, it's going to be squat switches, uh, okay. you know, hat switches, I believe. So it's going to be the actual uh, position of the the um the controls mm -hmm. and actually i just had an expert that just walked in the, the room mm -hmm. that actually flew the rj as well and, and let me ask him the question he didn't hear it okay um so um do you remember because we're talking about a the um um bombardier 5000 which is a very similar car it's a similar airplane to what we flew with the 200 you know 700 900 um do you remember when you did a flight control test you know how you Go to that page, and it'll show you the positions of the flight controls. Do you know if that was the actual position of the flight control, or just an indication of where where you were putting the flight control wheel or and or rudders? I think it was the actual position, but I can have a number. Yeah, well, the, yeah, that would make sense actually. Yeah, it was the actual position because it gave us the number. So I'm, okay. I'm just wondering if you can uh, misconnect the actual control surface. Can you also misconnect the indicators so that you're getting a reading from the wrong control surface? Maybe but, you, you, you possibly. I mean, anything with you know computer generated uh, uh, you know uh, display certainly. Nothing could go wrong. Yeah, nothing, nothing could go wrong. wrong. Nothing could go wrong. Okay, interesting. Anything to and Ken said we fly the best. We fly fly by wire on the eighty eight. We do real it's wire, three eighths inch stainless steel wire. Yeah, because <laughs> there's no way you could possibly misconnect a wire. Yeah, no way. <laughs> no, that, that's never happened. Never, in the whole never no. happened. Come no, on, no, stop it. it. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> uh, this next jet or new, next story, excuse me. Uh, you know. I think Steph, uh, because apparently she's pretty bored with what we're doing here today, I'm going to have her read this one. So not, not bored at all. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So this is the... Uh, the Cirrus? Flying, yeah, flyingmag.com. Uh, FAA grounds all Cirrus vision jets over angle of attack issues. So the entire, and this was written by Rob Mark. I'm sure most folks listening know who he is. Mm -hmm. um, this was published... Uh, excuse me. Yes. I don't know who he is. Rob Mark, so, he's from the Airplane Geeks. Former contributor former to host. the Airplane Geeks. Yeah. yeah, former host of the Airplane Geeks. Um, I'm sorry you've been living under a rock, <laughs> Captain Nick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, he says, the entire Cirrus SF-50 SF vision fleet of 70-plus aircraft is grounded until further notice. The FAA on Thursday issued an emergency airworthiness directive. That was last Thursday, I believe. Um, against the Cirrus uh, Vision Jet that grounds the entire fleet until specified maintenance is performed on the aircraft's angle of attack indicators. The airworthiness directive was prompted by three incidents in the Cirrus model SF-50 airplanes of the Stall Warning and Protection System, SWPS, or Electronic Stability and Protection, ESP system, engaging when not appropriate with the first incident occurring in November and the latest this month. The agency said... The noted condition presents an immediate danger to pilots and passengers of Cirrus Design Corporation model SF-50 airplanes because an uncommanded pitch down may be difficult to recover from in some flight regimes with potentially fatal consequences. The before further flight compliance time and need to replace the angle of attack sensors 
due to the potentially fatal consequences, does not allow for prior notice and opportunity to comment uh, for the public. The AD explained that uh, these systems may engage even when sufficient airspeed and proper angle of attack exists for normal flight. The SWPS, which is the Stall Warning and Protection System, uh, includes the Stall Warning Alarm, Stick Shaker, and Stick Pusher. Says the Garmin, de- uh, Garmin designed ESP includes underspeed protection, um, and the SWPS system uh, engaging inappropriately could potentially result in a stall warning, crew alert message activation, accompanied by an audio alarm and stick shaker activation, followed possibly by either low speed ESP uh, or USP, the underspeed protection engaging and or stick pusher engaging. Uh, the pilot will also observe the dynamic and color coded, uh, parentheses, red, airspeed awareness ranges displaying the stall band regardless of actual indicated airspeed. So this sounds hmm. oddly familiar. A little familiar to me. Um, yeah, I mean, and Ken brought a, he brought up the point. He just doesn't want to bring it up and talk himself, but he said he wonders if it's anything related to the same company that designed the, the airplanes, uh, the, the 7800 hmm. MAX. System. Maybe it is. I don't know for sure. Yeah. So one of the, one of the systems on the Cirrus is a Garmin design system. That's the uh, the ESP, which is stands for Electronic Stability and Protection, um, and that's what includes that underspeed protection. But I'm not sure who designs the other system. Did it say the stall it warning didn't say protection in the article. system? Um, yeah, I would it, think that would be Cirrus designed. Do you but, think? It just sounds very oddly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it possible the FAA are just being hypersensitive uh, about these uh, occurrences now? So they they look at perhaps trolling through past reports and suddenly going, whoa, we don't want to have two of these uh, that might implicate a certain lack of attention. I don't know. Uh, So they're just just coming down real hard on anything that even resembles uh, the 7-3 problem. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. Certainly. I, I think the FAA's got it so bad they're using preparation H on everything now. <laughs> now, the other thing on a serious note, I have to agree with you there, Dana, but <laughs> on a more serious note, um, uh, uh, did I read, uh, and someone will have to uh, confirm this, that Boeing outsourced the uh, software for the MCAS system, or did they write it in house? Question mark. I don't know there? the answer to that question. I, I, I had not seen that. Um, I had not either. That's okay. the validity of Ken's question. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the reason why I think the, there is a chance that these two might be linked. But I don't know if they did outsource or not. But I have a vague memory at the back of my head that I might have read that it wasn't necessarily, it was a Boeing subcontractor or might have been a Boeing subcontractor that uh, um, did some of the software work there. Well, the but, common denominator between this issue on the Cirrus SF-50 Vision jet and the Boeing 7.3 MAX 8 and 9 and Air France, um, what was it again? 40, 447? Uh, yeah. Uh, that, the, the thing that initiated, at least, well, we don't have any crashes from the Vision jet, but at least the, the MAX uh, 8 and uh, the uh, Airbus 330 all started with um, an AOA. Um, actually, there wasn't an AOA on the Air France. It was an airspeed indicator. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, a little bit. It's one of those little things France. out there. Yeah. Yeah. PETO system, right? Is yeah. that correct, Nick? PETO system? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, then never mind. Right again. Disregard he that. Want to talk. Oh. He doesn't want to talk, but he Fix was him. right it again. That was that was Ken talking. Okay. Well, thank you, Ken. He, he Good said, to not see you. He said, happy to be here. I don't know if you heard him. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, I uh, thought this one was interesting. Um, a fatal plane crash in a Northern California Norco prison yard involved one-of-a-kind plane from Chino. Norco is a uh, brand name of a narcotic pain medication here in the United States. So okay. That's, sorry. That has um, nothing to do with this, but... So that's probably not exactly why they named the prison Norco, though, right? North, Northern California? Yeah, probably. Okay. But it says Norco. I don't know what that means. Anyway, there was a... Is it the name of the town? Uh, Might be the name of the town. Good questions you have there. Okay. Don't know the answer. Anyway... Uh, the point of this is that this is a one of a kind airplane. I think they made four of these scale model flying wing airplanes. Uh, Northrop did, uh, back in the, I believe it was. Doesn't that make it four of a kind? Yeah. Uh, one of four of a kind. Yeah. It's a four of a kind airplane, but this is only the, it was the last one remaining of the four that were built. And, uh, and, uh, there are no more because this one crashed and uh, it took off out of the Chino airport and it was being piloted by one of the museum. Uh, the museum is the, uh, what do they call that? Uh, darn. Um, trying to find the that. planes of fame. Planes of fame. Yes. Um, one of the pilots from the planes of fame air museum in Chino uh, was out uh, flying the airplane, I guess, practicing for an upcoming air show, I think in the beginning of May. And, flying this flying wing and uh, it crashed and we're not sure, you know, we don't really have details of what happened, if it was an engine failure or whatever happened to the darn thing. Uh, but uh, that uh, airplane was basically the predecessor of, um, well, Northrop was uh, contracted with building a uh, bomber that I think it was called the B-35. And then yeah, of course right. we know in now our time, the flying wing bomber, uh, the B-2. Um, it's all part of the, the lineage of the development of the flying wing airplane. And uh, looks like the pilot, the uh, museum pilot, was the sole occupant and uh, died in the crash. So um, I'll that's, put... Go ahead. That's incredibly sad. I mean, it's just a remarkable piece of history that um, I don't know how many B-35s uh, are still kicking around. It, well, it never really got to the B-35, no. did it? It was the YB-35, so it means prototype version. Right. Um, and I, I believe there are some that are, are kicking around museums, certainly none flying, but it, it was a fantastic, uh, had great, great potential. Carried a pretty impressive uh, bomb load and would have gone around 10,000 miles because of the unique design, um, you know, a remarkable uh, piece of kit. Just so sad that this uh, bit of history has now been destroyed. And, of course, the loss of life is, you know, tragic. I was interested uh, reading some of this from Wikipedia regarding the N9M, uh, the Northrop uh, flying wing that crashed here. Uh, was partially constructed of wood to reduce its overall weight. The wing's outer surfaces were also skinned with a strong, specially laminated plywood, the central section, roughly equivalent to the fuselage, was made of welded tubular steel. And uh, I guess the first um, scale models with the 60-foot or 18-meter wingspan uh, were powered by 290-horsepower Manasco 
C6S1 Buccaneer in inverted air-cooled straight-six engines. And uh, this one was powered by two 300-horsepower Franklin XO547 engines. Never heard of either of those companies, but I'm not, Mm-mm. yeah, probably long gone, right? Yeah, no longer exists. Yeah. Like 50 years ago. Anyway, it's a shame. Uh, we'll include this, all this in the show notes for you uh, to take a look at. I've also included a video on YouTube of uh, a, this airplane in a in an air show in 2017. That's some pretty good video of this thing flying around. Pretty cool airplane. Because the, the tragic thing, it brings up the debate about whether these aircraft, uh, when you get down to the final one, uh, should you be allowed to fly them? So, right. you know, should they, because you can build a replica, but it'll never be the the same airplane again. Uh, and the, the great danger of flying them is, of course, exactly this will happen. And when it goes, it goes. That's yeah. its last one ever gone. Yeah. Damn. That's the way a good point. of the dodo. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you'd have very heated arguments on both sides of that. Oh, sure. Absolutely impossible to resolve. Yeah. But uh, the sad, sad fact is that now we have lost that, and that link has already gone for good. That is. This next one is interesting. Um, I would play the audio of this, but I do not understand Spanish. Probably a minority of our audience does. Uh, so this took place in uh, Buenos Aires, I think. Um uh, yep, in their airspace anyway. Yeah, in their airspace. Um, and uh, let's see, VAS Aviation has the audio of a heated exchange between a pilot and an air traffic controller in Argentina. Oh, okay, Argentina. Yeah, okay. Um, what happened? An Avianca Argentina ATR-72 and an Austral Embraer 190 passed just a few hundred feet apart when flying in the airspace over Buenos Aires. Uh, now, I'd note that often there's, and this is from uh, onemileatatime.com, a blog. He says, I'd note the, that often there's unnecessary media hype about planes not having proper separation because planes may appear close. The reality is that in a vast majority of situations, this is a non-issue because the planes are separated by at least 1,000 feet, and that's a normal procedure. However, in this instance, it sure seems like maybe things weren't going as planned, or at least that's what the pilot seems to think. So while the communications are in Spanish, here's what goes down after the two planes pass close to one another. And he said this is roughly translated. Pilot, I, I listened to it, and I could hear the, the different pilot voices are different airplanes. So I'm going to say pilot I, one. I think you should do it. Um, you should have two different people read it here. So okay. A- uh, I'll be pilot one. And, Steph, I want you to be the air traffic controller. Sure. And um, let's I'll be see. pilot two. Okay. Pilot one. Uh, we had around 500 to uh, 500 feet to 300 feet at some points of separation with that traffic that passed right above us from right to left. Yes, that's correct, sir. You are absolutely right. If you need to file a report, do it. It's due to the congestion that we have in the sector and the job at the moment. The truth is that you are all incompetent. That's the problem. Yeah. Come tell me in person, eh? Please. And that's you again. <laughs> Idiot. I know. I felt like there should be a pause. There. Okay. <laughs> a dramatic pause. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, I can just imagine the conversations going on in the cockpit, too. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah. So I, my question is, 
And I did they in the vast aviation playback of this, it actually shows the radar data. And I only saw about 500 feet, but it's still pretty close. Uh, there wasn't, there was less than 1000 feet separation. Uh, but I'm wondering, um, did anybody get a TCAS advisory or an RA? It doesn't mention it at all in this. Who's to say they're required to have it there? Maybe they aren't. Good point. I would think that. I thought uh, they did, though. I thought they did. And I'm wondering if this happened after that happened, perhaps. Possibly. I mean, I'm sure it didn't have this conversation did not happen in real time as they had that um, lack of separation incident. Yeah. Well, I don't know what happened there. But, but shortly it was after. Who knows? Interesting, though, that uh, they're kind of having words with each other, calling the one pilot calling the controller incompetent. No, not only the one controller, all <laughs> the air traffic controllers. You're all incompetent. You're all You're incompetent. All incompetent. <laughs> okay. Anyway. And so. how they'd say in, in, in the South be all y'all. All y'alls. All y'all. <laughs> okay. Well, we have the uh, YouTube link there. You can listen to it and watch it yourself. So there. Ah. That's the wrong one. Oh, well, that'll work. So we hear the drone music in the background. And the reason why we're playing that is that uh, the FAA certifies Google's wing drone delivery company to operate as an airline. Actually, it's Alphabet, uh, which is the parent company at Google, uh, the wing aviation to operate as an airline. It's a first for U.S. drone delivery companies. Wing, which began as Google X project, has been testing its on autonomous drones in southwest Virginia and elsewhere. And so they actually got certified to operate. I guess they're doing a their test bed is in southwestern Virginia, I believe they said here in the article. I'm trying to find the exact quote from this article, which is from NPR.org. And they have a video in there showing... Uh, one of these Google, actually wing uh, drones flying over somebody's house and lowering a little package. Looks like the one that, uh, that wing airlines or is that what they call them? Air uh, wing air service, wing aviation. There we go. Um, can carry 1.5 kilograms or 3.3 pounds. And uh, they're meant to deliver a wide range of everyday items from food and drinks to medicine and emergency supplies. Then also talks about in the article, um, as early as 2013, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos predicted that the online retail giant's octocopter drones would start buzzing out of fulfillment centers in the coming years. And their version of the delivery drone uh, to be built to carry around five pounds, a weight limit uh, that would allow about 85% of the products sold by Amazon to be delivered by drone. Anyway, I don't know. What do y'all think? Is this a good idea, this uh, drone delivery thing? And if, even if it's a good idea, and I know that there are some cases that it really does make a lot of sense. I think we've talked about it before, Steph, where, you know, some places that it's hard to get uh, needed and uh, urgent uh, medical supplies and that kind sure, of thing. Sure, things, things like that, um, you know, remote medical supplies, I think it's a good idea. Um, I know we were talking about one, I think it was in, was it at, uh, it was in Raleigh somewhere, wasn't it? Wake Forest? Uh, I think so. Uh, hospital and they were going to be uh, delivering supply or like lab samples between the hospital and the lab uh, more directly with use of drones. Um, 
I'm just wondering about the economics of. I was going to say the efficiencies of it because it can only carry one package at a time realistically. So it would have to go out to the location, fly back, go out to another location, fly back out. I mean, even if it's a a high speed drone, it's going to take, you know, several trips and maybe you can't do that many trips per day. I can see the, you know, where it would be even beneficial for remote regions where you can't get in necessarily because you don't have roads. But I think a delivery truck would be more efficient because it can hold a whole lot more mm-hmm. instead of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth all day. The last two articles here I think are, are uh, telling. Uh, in addition to Google and Amazon, delivery companies such as United Parcel Service and DHL Express also have been developing their own drone systems. And like many human endeavors they, uh, that rely on technology, a main hurdle has been a relatively simple constraint, battery life. And here's a quote from uh, the CEO of DHL parent Deutsche Post AG, uh, told the Associated Press last December, quote, if you have to recharge them every other hour, then you need so many drones and you have to orchestrate that. So good luck with that. <laughs> I love that. It's a great quote. So good Very luck with eloquent. that. <laughs> eloquent. Yeah, that's uh, going to be complicated. I can only see it working uh, if you're either living 30 minutes from a big depot, because otherwise, you know, you'll order something and they won't have it at the local depot that's 30 minutes away and uh, rather defeats the object. Um, however, having said that, 85% of the products sold by Amazon could be delivered by drone. They'd be of the correct weight. Um, but you're right. You've got the, the complication of uh, getting it to you and getting it back again. I can just see the sale of anti-aircraft guns going up enormously <laughs> so that uh, you could pick these off as they yeah. leave the dem- uh, you know, the, the warehouse and then run away with the contents because uh, that could be quite lucrative. Wow. No, I think I think Dana's absolutely right, though. I'm just thinking of, you know, I know myself and many of my neighbors um, frequently order things from Amazon Prime. So things are being delivered within a day or two um, to our homes. But it's one delivery driver with all of these packages for or all these parcels for all of these different homes. And one driver can make multiple stops in one trip. They don't have to keep going back every time mm-hmm. they need to get another package to drop off. You know, and, and it's, oh, oh, yeah. it's, there's two comments on that, Nick. Number one, uh, anti-aircraft uh, artillery in the cell is called a shotgun. <laughs> and number yeah, two, that, it's how many, how many people behind the scenes do you have flying these drones to be able to fly? I mean, they're, are they completely autonomous that, where they'll just go ahead and automatically oh, yeah. fly themselves? Yeah, I think they, they are. They'll be uh, completely autonomous. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if a shotgun's going to take it up 400 feet. Look, mind you, looking at this uh, example at the top there with the one with all the f- propellers along the fuselage a lot of the electronics seem to be mounted externally which worries me a little bit um but uh i mean if you're going to get this kind of service you're going to pay a premium for it which case you know uh you uh, want it within 30 minutes and you don't care whether the van uh is going to carry 40 packages or 50 packages you want it individually uh, delivered right now and i can see that being a service uh, some people might want yeah, like a, a premium, premium service. Well, yeah, partly that, but it's not expensive. And once you've got the drone, you just have to put a new battery in it and whack it off. Uh, an hour later, it comes back and do you what? can do another. another <laughs> what did you say? 
I don't know. What did you yeah, say? You, family you, show. I was speaking English. That's what she uh, said. <laughs> 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 send it off. <laughs> okay. You guys just missed what Nick just said. <laughs> He's talking about. Yeah, you, send you it you off. Yank, sure. You yanks are so easily amused. Yanks? <laughs> what? Come on. Stop it, Nick. You're killing us. <laughs> yeah. Good luck getting those drones to. All right. We're all chuckling here. My, Pay for my extra premium Amazon drone delivery service, and then they won't be able to get it to my house for all the trees that surround my house. Uh, you'll just have to uh, get it off the roof. They'll just drop it in the lake. Yeah. I'll have to swim for it. little floats on it. Yeah. There you go. All right. Okay. Finally, I can sense it's time for us to move off that subject <laughs> and on to this one, um, which was, it's kind of a sad, well, it's kind of a sad way to end our new segment. Uh, a Beechcraft B-60 Duke. Um, took off from Fullerton Airport, looks like uh, quite early in the morning, and uh, crashed after a failed takeoff attempt. And the thing that's um, interesting about this is that there is video, very clear video, of the airplane taking off and crashing. And it's, I don't know, did you have a chance to look at it, uh, any of you? Yeah, I've watched it. It's it's dramatic and sad. Does it look like, yep. it um, seems like the, the only thing that would cause that maybe is either just taking off to, uh, well, I'm thinking he lost power or yeah, significant like power on one engine value. and um, yeah, it was not above that minimum control speed mm. for multi-engine aircraft. Yeah, I'll, I'll put the wrong rudder in after losing the engine. Right. That would never happen. No. Nah. Yeah. Sadly, we see that quite often. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, I think... Oh. Nobody reminded me, but I remembered, which is amazing, I think. <laughs> Let's uh, go on to talk about our coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. The Coffee Fund is your way, dear listener, for you to support the show financially if you have the financial resources to do so. So if you need your money for food and shelter and clothing and flight lessons, uh, just ignore what I'm saying. Here. But if you want to be part of that group, that great group of folks who are part of our Coffee Fund cadre, uh, you can learn about how to do that by heading over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. And since the last episode, we have a couple of uh, classic fund contributors, Randy Ward and Carl Lake, along with recurring donations from Jeff and Anissa, Terry, Chris, and David. Again, that's the Cap Coffee Fund Classic Method. We also have Patreon. You can become a patron of the show. And we have a new producer, Christian Bass. And a new executive producer. And that's Ryan Hallivan. And uh, so, yeah, if you want to be part of this August group, or in this case, April group, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad that you did. And so will we. Message. All right, let's uh, start with Robert uh, from Marietta, also known as Mayretta. 
Uh, he says, I'm waiting for permission from my friend who just joined Delta Airlines to share more photos from their graduation on social media, but I'm sending this over in case I forget. Okay, so this is from a new Delta flight attendant. Okay, one more. Imp- now, I don't know who he's writing this to. Is this um, on social media, I guess? So I guess it's to... Uh, this looks a, like an Instagram post Instagram. just based on the way the hashtags were written at the bottom. And I'm oh. not sure, was this Robert or Robert's friend? This is Robert's friend. This correct? is Robert's friend. Yeah, okay. Robert. Yeah, I did not make that um, clear. Uh, a friend of Robert. Uh, Robert is not a an employee of Delta. Uh, but I guess one of his friends ended up getting hired by Delta, which is a very similar uh, company uh, to Acme Airlines, the uh, airline that Dana and I fly for. Okay, so here we go. Here's the uh, flight attendant's voice. Well, not exactly. It's my voice, but this is the flight attendant talking. Okay, one more important uh, post about my new career. Today marked my first ever trip as a flight attendant. I had an amazing crew, great passengers, experienced a ton in just two flights, successfully ran two meal services, and assisted in the back as well, answered customer questions with knowledge and assurance, dealt with customer concerns, and honored our values, Received customer compliments in flight before they even knew it was my very first ever trip. And then they were even more amazed. Had plenty of kids to keep an eye on and anxious parents to, to soothe. And a humbling moment with a family traveling home with their deceased loved one below being carried home. Overall, I went in confident and proud. And I walked away knowing that this job is stressful, but energizing, humbling, and rewarding. Not just a job but a lifestyle, but more importantly, that this is my new home and family. I made the right choice in choosing this as my career. From 200,000 plus applicants, 1,950 were chosen. So I'm proud to be part of this amazing company, family, and team, and that something inside of me and who I am made me stand out from hundreds of thousands of other people. Without my Delta family, Ashley, Sebastian, Craig, Jim, Joe, Randy, and Boban, I wouldn't have been as confident and strong throughout the application process, training, and everything in between. From hugs to frantic texts to care packages and everything in between, y'all mean the world to me. Without my instructors, Brett and Todd, putting up with my oddly specific questions and chatting their ear off about planes and the industry, I wouldn't have made it out of training with a 100% average and walked onto the line today feeling more prepared than I ever could have imagined for any situation that could happen to me. So thank you for supporting me and being pillars on my journey to success. I'm so happy to be part of the Delta family. That's really great to hear. You know, people so excited about uh, starting a career in the airline industry, in this case, uh, Flight operate not um, in flight operations or being a flight attendant. I'd like uh, to see your letter in a year from now. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I left out the part Dana talking about the pilots. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, except There's for already, this part. The complaints are already pouring in about the pilots. <laughs> anyway, so that, I mean, it's just neat to see I mean, whatever job field it is uh, to see a young person so excited about. You know their their new job and their and the future that they have in it and being excited. But as you said, Dana, I hope that that enthusiasm uh, stays with this person. Yeah, I think it's building those good experiences early. So yeah, yeah hopefully we, lots more of those to come. Okay, Alan, not Captain Al, 
because he spells it like Captain Al, uh, wrote in and said, Hello, APG crew. The non-Captain Al here with a quick update and related question for you. As you can see, I made it safely back from my trip to India, overcoming some last-minute fear, which nearly scuppered me getting on the plane. Overall, the flights were great, and I found it quite helpful with my phobia to imagine the plane being piloted by your good selves, with Dr. Steph sitting calmly alongside in the cabin, holding my hand and whispering sweet nothings in my ear. No, I'm, I, I'm adding that stuff. Sorry. He did oh. not say that. No, no. Uh, but he did say, with Dr. Steph sitting calmly alongside in the cabin. That said, there were two incidents that really frayed my nerves. The first was on the second leg of the flight out to India when, not long after we departed, a member of the cabin crew opened one of the food heaters at the back, which had apparently been left on or otherwise set incorrectly. (laughs) Dan and I have smelled that smell before. I obviously only found out that this is what happened after the event, so it was indeed quite nerve-wracking to have found myself engulfed with steam, smoke, and the smell of burning. The trip back was largely uneventful until we were midway home. I was sitting near the front of the wing, and suddenly the cabin crew all came running up in the area I was sitting in. I couldn't tell what was happening, and I heard someone say smoke. Being near the wing, and therefore the engine, I of course instantly jumped to the worst-case scenario and imagined plumes of smoke pouring from the plane. But no, it was the alarm going off in the toilet where a passenger was smoking. The rest of the flight was smooth as silk, and overall the trip was was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, which listening to your show helped my uh, helped me to take part in. The question I do now have, though, is this. In the instances like what I faced, how aware are the flight crew? I assume when any smoke alarm goes off, you're aware of that, regardless of where on the plane? I'm not sure if the incident with the food burning would have triggered an alarm, too, but I'd have thought so, judging from the steam and the smoke. When something like that does happen, I guess I'm just curious as to what the steps you take up at the front of the plane, where I guess you can't leave the cockpit in case it was someone using the smoke or the smoking as an attempt to get on the flight deck. Once again, thank you for a great show and for keeping me company on many of the miles of sky between Manchester and New Delhi, then back again, Alan. So, I let's start with Dana, since he's still here with us and has a fellow Mad Dog pilot with him. Um, so, would the... Uh, smoke detector activating in the lavatory necessarily be something that you would know anything about, Dana? No, actually, the smoke detectors on our aircraft are very similar to the smoke detectors that you would have in your house, which would make a, a local alarm where the flight attendants would be notified. They would actually hear it. Um, but we don't have any indication in the flight deck at all mm. that a smoke detector is being activated in the uh, in the lavatory. As a matter of fact, uh, if there's actually a fire in the lavatory, uh, in the uh, garbage bin for you know, more specific, there is a canister in there that will, uh, once it reaches, reaches a certain temperature, there's a, a plug in there that will melt and disperse the fire extinguishing agent self on its own. So um, it's really almost like a hands-off system. So that's why you don't ever smoke in the lavatory because it's going to make a, you know, it's going to become embarrassing. Um, but, you know, I, I really liked his, uh, you know, he's very much uh, in tune to um, the fact that the flight attendants uh, were, were there and, and, you know, procedures that, 
might be involved there. So uh, it's uh, um, it's really all there is on our aircraft, I think, Jeff. Yes, we do not have any kind of a system that uh, gives us any kind of an indication on our jet. I'm sure that on the Airbus that Captain Nick flies, there may be uh, some kind of a notif- notification of smoke alarms. Uh, oh, yes, Jeff. If uh, any of the toilet smoke alarms go off, uh, we get uh, all the fire bells going off in the fr- in the front uh, and uh, smoke indication uh, of where it's coming from. So we know, um, and obviously that for very good reasons, we uh, start uh, considering uh, initiating diversion uh, until, of course, we find out from the cabin crew how serious it is and whether they've dealt with the problem or not. It might be simple enough for... Just to lock off the toilet, having dealt with the uh, the fire, lock off the toilet, and uh, and we can carry on with one U.S. toilet. But uh, yeah, we we certainly find out about it. Um, the um, if we get a bad uh, um fire, and <laughs> to be fair, in the twenty five years I've flying, I've seen cabin crew uh, put on uh, the ovens to warm them up, and people have left their work handbags in there, their shoes in there, their hats, their jackets, because sometimes they're just too busy to find somewhere to put this stuff. They get on the aircraft for a bit of a rush, and they've got to swap over their work shoes for their uh, um, strutting around the airport shoes, and they just toss them into a convenient place, which might be an oven thinking, well, as soon as we get everyone, I'll take them out. And then, of course, somebody else thinks, oh, I'll preheat all the ovens for the meal service. And off goes somebody's handbag and it gets wrecked. So we, we have a few cases like that. But uh, everyone has a bit of a laugh about that afterwards. But uh, it can be a bit dramatic. For the, yeah, it's not uncommon. Passengers. No, it's not uncommon at all. <laughs> it's not uncommon on our jet. Uh, we have the, uh, the only oven on the uh, Mad Dog, at, at least now in the current configuration that we use, is up in the front and um i can't tell you how many times you know you're you know flying along and you start to smell something and you're kind of looking around like okay what's what's that what's that and then you finally you know dawns on you that somebody has heated up the oven and possibly left something inside of it my favorite story (laughs) though uh is uh we we have some very very senior flight attendants and one of these not you know, young herself was telling us a story of the, I think it was the number one flight attendant on the seniority list. And she was in her mid eighties, I think. Um, and she had a way of being forgetful about things. And this was before we went to our cashless system at Acme. So it used to be where people could pay for drinks and other items with cash. And she was the onboard leader, the A-line the lead flight attendant purse or whatever you want to call her. And, uh, she had taken all this cash throughout the trip and they, they carry all this stuff with them until the very end of the trip. And then they, they, they turn it in through some kind of a system. Uh, that was back in that day anyway. And so they were in flight and all of a sudden smoke just started pouring from one of the ovens on the airplane. And they were going, what, what is that? What is going on? They opened it up and it was just like a big giant pile of cash that was on fire. Inside the oven. <laughs> and you bust out the, uh, the fire extinguisher or just, yeah, I think it, yeah. I think it pretty much burnt all the, all the Probably money. A bit late. Uh, <laughs> damn. Yeah. That, that's one way to get rid of the discrepancy in the bar sales. Exactly. Uh, 
Yeah. But uh, I, I mean, I do remember uh, on one flight, we're heading off to Tokyo, and we reported the fact that we could hear an emergency locator beacon. And uh, it's common for us to do that. People set them off by accident, or it might actually be a, a real emergency. And we tell uh, air traffic control when we start hearing them uh, so that, uh, you know, enough aircraft report, they can sort of triangulate where the uh, emergency beacon might be coming from, that sort of thing. Anyway, we reported, and we were heading into Russian airspace where you change controllers frequently. And we must have reported this beacon to about 10 different controllers because it went on like for hour after hour after hour. And I'm going, this is ridiculous. Following where us. Where is this beacon coming from? <laughs> so I, I actually went on my break. And as is common, I often walk around the airplane uh, and just have a quick chat with the crews to say, and I know we've got two uh, of the big um, locator beacons that you take off the aircraft if you ditch. Uh, and they're, they're big, like 48-hour beacons. They float in water, big aerials, so that if you ditch you, or if you go on land, come to that, you can set these up and uh, they can come find you. And I, I know there's one at the front, one at the back, and I wandered around, and I happened to just open the panel and look in at the one at the back, just out of curiosity, and there was a handbag stuffed down there. And someone has stuffed their handbag in on top of this beacon. And the way one of the way this particular beacon activated was that you released the uh, aerial, which flipped up. And as soon as it did, a micro switch opened and the beacon went off. And they'd managed to partly release the aerial. And it hadn't completely deployed, but it, it started off the beacon. And we were reporting our own damn beacon. <laughs> a very, like very hours. strong signal. Six hours, we got this, this beacon's chasing us. Where are we? Where is it coming from? <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> okay. Um, well, that was a great question, Alan. I'm glad that, uh, well, I'm not glad that you have anxiety of, uh, for flying, but um, I'm, it looks like you're, uh, you're getting better. And uh, I'm glad that we're here to kind of help you alleviate some of the uh, the uh, fear and anxiety by you know g gaining some knowledge of what's going on uh, in our in our uh, careers um, and uh, do let us know how that goes in the future and uh, it was uh, a great question you know Jeff I did mention forget to mention one thing yeah the smell of that oven, that oven when it's on right behind us mm -hmm. can either be very disgusting like turns the taste buds off mm -hmm. or if somebody brings something from home and turns that oven on right behind us and you haven't had anything to eat in mm -hmm. several hours and it smells delicious. Next thing you know, you're saliv salivating and finding it very hard to concentrate on doing <laughs> anything else other than thinking about eating. I've always thought it was interesting, Dana. I don't know if you feel the same way, but uh, you know, most of the flights that Dana and I fly are not meal service flights. Very few and far between and only certain markets like uh boston and and uh new york portland and portland yeah um but uh so uh, i'd say like 98 percent of the flights that we fly on the mad dog at acme are not um meal flights and so when you do smell something cooking in the oven you're thinking huh what is that and then you think oh okay well obviously that's something that the flight attendant is heating up and i've always thought that it's kind of, uh, to me, it almost seems kind of rude because everybody in first class, at least, maybe even further back, can probably smell 
Yeah, or and getting, they're going, wow, that you know, your everybody's stomachs are going like, ooh, that sounds good. You know, that smells good. I wonder what we're going to get served. And then they see the flight attendants eating their meals. I'm thinking, I'm not so sure that that's a great idea, but that's maybe just me. You know, and the funny part is, is, is usually when I smell, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say anything bad about airline meals, but usually when you smell that smell that's kind of offensive, you don't want to have <laughs> You're right. airline meals. And when it's the home cooked meals, it's. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I think it must be eat. like the container that they cook the things in. It's almost like a papery kind of off plasticky <laughs> paper smell to it. And you're going, ew, that just sounds, that smells horrible. Especially all the ones that are like just in little trays that are, yeah. Know, the same. I would imagine that it's a completely di- different experience for Captain Nick and uh, the kind of meal service that they have on his airline probably is is much higher quality and uh, higher class. Well, yeah. <laughs> let's not go there, guys, because I I don't want you to you know feel uh, you know, that uh, subpar. You're missing out on that's okay. This delicious and the, okay that's know, enough the smoked salmon the caviar <laughs> uh, and uh, the fillet steak and uh, uh you know the where's the mute switch <laughs> how do i mute him <laughs> he could just unmute yeah, himself the though sushi and uh yeah you okay. know all the other stuff and i had the lasagna yeah. <laughs> the lasagna oh really oh dear is that all <laughs> hey so uh oh dear Hey, Dana, you and your FO and uh, Brett, y'all heading out to uh, get something good to eat there in uh, in Chapel Hill? Yeah, we will be shortly. Okay. I didn't I didn't mean to push you away. I just wanted to make sure that you weren't waiting for us to end something and then leave. So shall we keep going? Yeah, I think one, maybe two more, and then we'll, we'll head out the door by 6.30. Okay. 15 minutes. Very good. Um. Let's see. Ruben sent us some audio feedback. Let's take a listen. G'day, mates. How are you going? It's F.O. Ruben here, the Flying Dutchman Down Under. I fly the uh, four-engined British Aerospace Avro RJ and one for six jets on regional routes in Australia. It's an older plane already, but half the time we fly into gravel strips somewhere out in the desert, and that kind of jet kind of works pretty well on those routes. I guess to do this, we have our way of doing things, as does every operator have their own ways. So my question today relates to how your way of flight planning works in your operator, which is probably very different to what what we do or any other operator does, and in particular to choosing cruise levels and speeds and how your operator goes about doing things. Who decides what cruising levels you'll be using for an upcoming sector? And are there some cases where sometimes you tend to choose to change them either before flight or, or in flight due to, I guess, circumstances or, you know, prior experience or gut feeling or how often, and also how often do you use step climbs or is this something you only do in the long haul, like when crossing the, the Atlantic or I don't know whether you use them within, within the US. And what about cruising speeds? Do you um, just stick to the to planned cruising speeds, which are decided I'm guessing through a cost index by flight ops. I guess when I say cost index, a short explanation would be appropriate here. And um, yeah, how much leeway do you have in increasing the cruise speeds when you deviate? Well, I guess when you decide to deviate from whatever the flight ops department or dispatch decided to uh, plan you at. Anyway, thanks in advance for the most probably interesting discussion. 
Um, good day, guys. Ruben out. Well, I mean, to answer your question, um, it's and Ruben. I mean, just really some really good uh, uh, questions here. Number one, we primarily uh, are filed at a specific altitude that is planned by the dispatcher, um, but we have full attitude to go ahead and decide based on reports that we're hearing. We also have a, a flight weather viewer that will help us to decide what might be the best altitude based on turbulence. Uh, the air traffic controller will sometimes recommend what altitude would be best for the smoothest ride. Um, and also we may ask, uh, you know, what the feeling is for the best ride is. Uh, sometimes we'll even look to, on the flight plan, see what the, uh, the, the winds are doing and maybe uh, the actual winds versus what the uh, planned winds are might be a little different, so we take all this into consideration when we when we decide what altitude we're we're gonna uh, on on the Mad Dog on the shorter routes we that we're gonna fly, and sometimes we'll go ahead and search for different altitudes um, to go ahead and try to find the smoothest ride because you know as passenger you know aircraft you know that's what we're looking for is to provide the best possible ride for our passengers. Now, as far as uh, flying the aircraft at the speed, well, the company really wants you to stay at the established speeds that they, they have your flight planned at for efficiency reasons. Um, there are times in which, you know, we will speed up the aircraft. I won't say when we're trying to go home because that would not be politically correct. But, yes, the last leg, sometimes we do speed it up. Uh, yesterday, excuse me, on, um, you heard me talk about it earlier when I had that passenger removed. We were about 15 minutes late departing. Sarasota, so I opted to go ahead and fly the aircraft at a much faster speed. Air traffic control actually didn't slow us down for change going into into the hub, so uh, we were actually able to make up most of that time and arrive at the gate on time. So there are situations in which we will go ahead and choose to use a higher cruise speed, um, but we prefer not to because the efficiency goes way down, just like if you're in your vehicle on the ground or while you're on the Avro. Uh, you know, you 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 know, if you fly the airplane faster, you know you're going to burn a lot more fuel quicker. Uh, as far as a step climb goes, yeah, we do on, on on longer legs. We will do a step climb, and ours is based on weight um, because our aircraft uh, is has the original wing really designed back from, from the DC nine thirty forty and fifty series. It really hasn't changed, so the wing itself uh, where we, we lose efficiency up high, uh, it doesn't have the same amount of lift. So we have to lose some weight sometimes. Although I personally need to lose some weight. You never know that might happen. But uh, anyways, when we lose weight, um, then we're able to climb the aircraft up higher. And of course, the higher you go, generally speaking, the more efficient you are. So that's uh, the basic answer from the, uh, the uh, uh, smaller jets. Uh, what do you think, Nick? Well, first of all, uh, I just wanted to say how fascinating your uh, flying must be, Ruben, because uh, I know some of those gravel strips uh, in Australia must be uh, pretty testing. Uh, they're probably not um, serviced that often, checked out, so you must probably get the odd surprise. I wonder if you do one of those low-level overflights uh, just to make sure that all the kangaroos are off. And there's no uh, camels wandering over the strip before you actually make your approach to land. Do they have um, camels in Australia? Oh, yeah. Some of oh, the best okay. camels in the world. They're really? exporting. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of uh, camels that were used by the ex initial explorers in Australia and then released to the wild. Ooh. And because they've been breeding in the outback, um, they're considered uh, to be very good quality stock. And uh, they're actually uh, purchased sometimes at great price by 
uh, rich people in the Middle East who want to have fine racing camels. So, yes, there are, there are a lot of camels in Australia. So, uh, yeah, that must be, I mean, you, when you say doing things your own way, that kind of flying must be absolutely fascinating. Of course, the 146, I don't know about the Avro, uh, RJ, but the 146, I think, is a pretty good airplane for operating off those kind of uh, rough strips. So uh, I'd love to hear a bit more about that anyway, if you get the chance to send some uh, more feedback. But going to your questions, um, when it comes to cruising level for us, of course, uh, on a long-haul flight, they're really quite vital. Uh, if you don't quite get your correct cruising level on a short-haul flight, well, you're only up there a, an hour or two. It's not going to make a huge difference. But if you're going like for 10 hours and you're at the wrong level, that uh, can increase your fuel burn by several percent. And you may not be carrying enough uh, fuel to even uh, allow you to get to your destination if you don't get your levels. Uh, and it's a lot more tactical. So um, we will always try and go initially for the level that's on being calculated in our flight plan because they will run using all the wind data uh, for the entire route. They'll run that route several times at all different levels to find the optimum. Um, but it really depends on who's around you. Uh, as to whether you go to the allocated flight level and try and climb in half an hour, whether you stagger up to as high as you can go and burn a little bit more because you're too high for the optimum, but you're safe in the knowledge now that you've got your flight level and that no one can take it away from you because that's a common problem. If you fly at the best flight level, when it comes time to climb, you find that someone's uh, camped out in the flight level you want and they're too close for you to get up particularly when you're across an ocean and you need a lot of separation between uh, aircraft uh, before you can go up and occupy the same flight level. So, uh, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of strategic thinking goes on in long-haul flights to make sure you've uh, you've achieved the right flight level and hold it for as long as possible. And we obviously step climb um, when we need to. There, there, I've never done a cruise climb. That's, uh, you know, if you're in the north of Canada, sometimes there's nobody around you. You can get permission to do cruise climbs, but uh, they're pretty rare. And for those who aren't familiar, cruise climb just allows you to put the aircraft basically in a very gentle climb. And as the aircraft burns off fuel, uh, the aircraft will just creep up in altitude rather than holding level until the aircraft is burned off several tons and then jumping up uh, one, two, three, or three, or four thousand feet in one go, which is obviously uh, doing it like that is, is slightly less efficient than allowing the aircraft to cruise climb, which uh, obviously the best way of doing things. And uh, cost index, well, in, in our outfit, it's, I won't say it's set in stone, but you have to have a good reason to change it. And uh, what's more, uh, you know, just getting... In on time is not always uh, considered a suitable excuse for increasing your cost index and cruising faster because it depends where your passengers may not be connecting on and uh, there may, for example, be a problem with uh, uh, the number of gates available. And if you get there on time or early, we always try and get there on time, but if you Get there a little early, you may very well just end up sitting on the taxiway waiting for a gate to come free, in which case you've just wasted a lot of fuel and money for no good reason. Very good points. And I had the same <laughs> I had the same uh, thought that you did, Nick, when he was talking about landing on gravel airstrips. Mm. I'm thinking, wow, yeah. 
that is definitely interesting. Um, and uh, I'm going to assume I had to leave for a moment, and uh, I'm going to assume that uh, Dana, you answered uh, that question expertly, and I have nothing to add. Uh, he yeah. did. He did a fine job. I, you know, <laughs> I don't know about so expertly because I'm talking to my boss in slang, so that's not always the. <laughs> well, I can fix it in post. <laughs> you can fix it in post. I'll have to re-record it for you. <laughs> All four of us end up with the exact same accent on the. Uh, <laughs> I'll try to imitate him. I can't. All right. No, well, that was that's an actually excellent question. Of course, uh, um, I agree with both you guys as far as the Ruben's question and in the type of flying he does. Uh, it's absolutely amazing to be able to go out there and and, and be in your own world and, and fly uh, that type of. Uh, almost general aviation type of flying it, it's it's a lot of fun it's like a combination of both worlds so uh kudos to you you know on on, on doing that and enjoying that and you know thank you both of you guys for, for mentioning that i was focusing more on the technical issues certainly in the technical part of the question mm-hmm. um so one last yeah. thing to, to maybe mention for ruben if you're interested in learning more about how um legacy airlines here in the united states um their, their flight planning operations. I'd point you over to Mike Carroll's uh, podcast, Flying in Life. He's a dispatcher. So there's a lot of information related to a lot of these questions that you have on his podcast. Yes, absolutely. You're right. Very true. Good point. Excellent point. Okay. So on that note, I'm going to go ahead and say on behalf of uh, my fantastic first officer who's been so actively in, in, in participation, let me say it slowly because that way people can see what I'm saying. Uh, in participating here, and Brett, um, we're going to go ahead and sign off because we're going to go uh, explore this wonderful campus in, at the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and find ourselves some food because we're hungry. Yeah. What, what were you going to say, Dr. Steph? I see. I said, go heels. Go heels. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we're going to go ahead and explore the uh, campus for a little bit and spend some time. Cause, uh, actually, um, Ken hasn't spent a whole lot of time here. So I'd like to go show it to him while it's still light outside. Oh yeah. So beautiful campus, beautiful campus. So listen, guys, great being here. Thank you for having me on and, uh, we'll hopefully catch you next week. All right. Very good. Good. Have a good time. Later. Cheers. Have a good evening. Guys, have a good dinner. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, um, I am at home here at the APG headquarters building by myself. My wife Linda left. Um, it's her birthday today, and she uh, left. <laughs> birthday, Linda. Yeah, uh, she ha- is, uh, or she probably has arrived by now in uh, Elon, North Carolina. Speaking of North Carolina, uh, to uh, visit my daughter. And uh, it's like a, one of those weekends where, you know, the moms are significant female people in their lives kind of weekends. Uh, we had one of those for uh, the, the dads slash significant male people um, last year. I think I told everybody about that. And so she is uh, gone and we have animals and one in particular who is pretty much mostly blind, uh, mostly deaf, and uh, her, her hind legs really aren't working very much anymore, and uh, it's kind of sad. Poor baby. Anyway, uh, I heard her barking um, while uh, we were listening to Ruben's audio feedback, and I kind of 
through the back channels here said, hey, I got to go because I, I'm not sure what's going on up there. So I need to take care of her. And I still need to do some other items, get her outside and make sure that she's eating her dinner and all that kind of stuff. Because a lot of times I actually have to hold her her plate uh, for her so she could eat. Um, and uh, so with that, I think this this would be a good time for us to play this week's Plain Tale. What do you think? Sounds great. All right. Perfect, Jeff. Here we go. The old pilot's plain tales into thinner air. On my last tale, we heard about some aircraft that mysteriously carried on flying for miles without a pilot at the controls. This is a phenomenon that is not just restricted to the military. The dangers of high-altitude flying are not really emphasized to the flying public, and many are completely happy to sit in their pressurized flying tube without any true understanding of the environment they're traveling through. Here, typing at my desk, I'm at one atmosphere of pressure. Above me is a layer of air that surrounds the Earth, and although we consider air to be light, the weight of many miles of air, about 75 miles or 120 kilometers of it, sits on our shoulders. To be more accurate, it presses on all parts of us continuously, and we have to live under its weight. It's the equivalent weight of a 30-foot, that's over 10 meters, column of water. That's about 14 pounds per square inch, or one kilogram per square centimeter, pressing down on us. The weight of all the air that surrounds the world is five million billion tons. We have evolved to live under that weight of air and can actually cope with much higher pressures. A record-breaking free diver has reached 24 and a half times the weight of the atmosphere without suffering injury. What we are not so good at is coping with a reduction of air pressure. Despite the fact that the atmosphere reaches up to 75 miles, when we climb our airliners up to a common cruising level of around 36,000 feet, about 7 miles high, three quarters of the mass of the atmosphere is now below us and the air is at a much lower pressure. Having been explosively decompressed in a hyperbaric chamber by the Air Force a few times, the effects are not as death-defying as one might imagine. The biggest concern is keeping the flow of oxygen that we are breathing at a high enough concentration and pressure to pass through the walls of the lungs. The membranes inside the lungs are only one cell thick, but gas molecules need pressure to pass through and into the bloodstream. Take that pressure away and the transfer of gases stops. You'll soon start suffering from hypoxia, a lack of oxygen to the body. Depending on the severity, hypoxia can soon lead to unconsciousness and death. Payne Stewart was a fine golfer. Popular with spectators, he was renowned for wearing distinctive and flamboyant clothes. Other golfers admired him for having one of the most gracefully fluid golf swings of the modern era. 
By 1999, he had won 11 PGA Tour events, including three majors, one of which was the US Open. He was part of the American team that had rallied so well to win the 1999 Ryder Cup. A month after that momentous victory, he boarded a Learjet to fly from his home in Orlando to Texas for the last tournament of the year. Tasked with flying Payne Stewart and his fellow passengers that day were two experienced pilots. Captain Michael Kling held an air transport pilot certificate and his type rating included airliners as well as the Learjet that he was flying that day. In addition, he was an instructor pilot on the KC-135. His first officer, Stephanie Belagargu, was also a flight instructor and held type ratings on the Cessna Citation 500 and the Learjet. There was nothing unusual about their flight preparation that day. They checked the weather, filed their flight plan and loaded more than enough fuel for their flight to Dallas. They took the Sunjet Aviation Learjet off from Sanford Airport for the short and uneventful positioning flight to Orlando International, where they were due to pick up their passengers. Having embarked their famous golfer plus three others, they took off for the second time that day, initially routing north on the departure, climbing up to 14,000 feet. They were further cleared to climb to 26,000 feet, change frequency, and then were cleared to continue their climb to their cruise level of flight level 390, 39,000 feet. They acknowledged the instruction as they passed 23,000 feet. It was the voice of Stephanie, the first officer, who sounded perfectly normal, but it was to be their final transmission. As the Learjet passed 36,000 feet, the controller passed further instructions, but there was no reply. The controller made multiple attempts to contact the aircraft, but nothing came back. The authorities acted swiftly. A nearby F-16 from the Flight Test Squadron at Elgin Air Force Base was vectored to join up with the stricken aircraft, which had continued to climb to over 46,000 feet. The inside of the Learjet's cabin was in darkness and the cockpit windows were frosted over with ice or condensation and nothing could be seen of the two pilots. When he had to leave the Learjet, other fighters joined it to track its progress. It continued onwards, crossing state after state and not responding to calls until, eventually, fuel exhausted, it slowed, stalled, and then began a rapid rolling descent towards the earth miles below. A pheasant hunter in a South Dakota cornfield was teaching a hunting class when he spotted a silent aircraft plummet down into an adjacent field a mile or two away. It was an eerie and shocking sight to witness. The aircraft crashed no sound, no explosion, it just disappeared behind the tall corn stalks. Then four F-16 fighters roared overhead, breaking the silence. All on the Learjet died. Had they somehow not perished in the air, the aircraft hit the ground at such a speed that survival would have been impossible. The inquiry did their best to establish the cause of the crash, but were hampered by a lack of evidence. 
What was obvious was that the pilots had succumbed to hypoxia when the aircraft depressurized in the climb and they failed to obtain the supplementary oxygen that they needed to remain capable of dealing with the emergency. It's possible that the oxygen tank that they were trying to use was empty since the Learjet had flown over 104 hours since the last recorded filling of the system and it was almost certainly used on some of those flights. When the aircraft crashed, it was reading empty. It's also possible that the crew were just too slow to don their masks and became incapacitated before they could do so. There were just too many unanswered questions, and the NTSB formally determined that the probable cause of the accident was incapacitation of the flight crew members as a result of their failure to receive oxygen following a loss of cabin pressure for undetermined reasons. As tragic as this crash was, it pales into insignificance compared with the second half of this tale. Helios Flight 522 was a scheduled airline flight between Larnica in Cyprus and Athens in Greece. It was August 2005, and the aircraft, a Boeing 737-300 series, was carrying 115 passengers, mainly Cypriots and Greeks, and being captained by Hans-Jürgen Merton, a 59-year-old German contract pilot, hired by Helios for the holiday flights. Merton was an experienced pilot who had been flying for 35 years and previously worked on a number of airlines. His first officer was a 51-year-old Cypriot pilot who had been flying for Helios for the past five years. The aircraft had arrived from London that morning and been snagged by the inbound crew for having a frozen door seal and abnormal noises had been heard from around the right aft service door. The British ground engineer carried out an inspection on the door and then performed a pressurisation check. In order to do this without running the engines, he needed to set the pressurisation system to manual and on completion of the successful test, that's how the system was left. The pilots climbed into the aircraft and prepared it for flight. According to their checklists and procedures, they were required to check the state of the pressurization system and confirm that it was set in auto three separate times. During the cockpit setup, during the after start checklist, and also during the after takeoff checklist. There are surprisingly few things that will kill you when flying in an airliner. Hitting the ground is one of them and flying at high level without pressurization is another. At a little after nine in the morning, the Helios flight got airborne with the pressurization system set to manual and the aft outflow valve partially open. Had the system been correctly set to auto, the outflow valves would have closed after takeoff to allow the aircraft to pressurize. On reaching the correct pressure differential, the valves would then open slightly to allow a controlled flow out of the aircraft to maintain the correct cabin altitude. In the manual position, the outflow valves must be controlled by the pilots. It's a backup system should the automatic system fail. 
As the 737 climbed, air bled from the engines would have been entering the cabin to pressurise the aircraft, but since the system had been left in manual, with an outflow valve partially open, the air was escaping almost as fast as it was coming in. As the aircraft climbed, so did the cabin, and the aircraft was rapidly increasing in height to the point where the air pressure was becoming dangerously low. Eventually, passing an aircraft altitude of 12,000 feet, the cabin altitude warning horn sounded. This was coincident with the cabin altitude reaching 10,000 feet. The warning horn on the 737 has several functions, only one of which is linked to cabin altitude. It most commonly sounds when the aircraft isn't configured properly. Perhaps the landing gear or flaps were in the wrong position. Misidentifying the reason for the horn, the captain radioed his company operations centre to advise them that the takeoff configuration warning is on. He then advised that the cooling equipment, normal and alternate, are offline. Speaking to the ground engineer who did the earlier work on the pressurisation system, the engineer asked him, can you confirm that the pressurisation panel is set to auto? Of course this wasn't the case, and it should have been the trigger for the crew to reassess their situation, as the light indicating that the pressurisation system was set to manual was illuminated and the warning horn was blaring. However, perhaps distracted by the noise of the loud horn, and by now suffering from the effects of hypoxia, the crew would have had difficulty comprehending their situation. Captain Merton made the fatal mistake of ignoring his engineer. The aircraft continued to climb, and as it passed 18,000 feet, with the cabin altitude reaching 14,000, the passenger oxygen masks deployed. The captain, still trying to solve the less important issue regarding his equipment cooling, made his final transmission asking where the circuit breakers were. Under the control of the autopilot, the 737 reached its cruising altitude of 34,000 feet and then continued on its programmed flight path towards Athens. Inside the cabin, the air was thinner than on the peak of Everest and after 12 minutes, the passenger oxygen system would have been exhausted. On the flight deck, the pilots never used their oxygen masks and they likely succumbed to the effects of oxygen starvation by falling unconscious. Soon after, in the cabin, the passengers would have suffered the same fate. The cabin crew, however, had a longer supply of oxygen from their portable bottles and it's certain that at least one of them used that supply for the duration of the flight. Flight attendant Andreas Prodromu was learning to become a pilot and held a UK commercial pilot's licence. We know he eventually gained access to the cockpit, a difficult task because of the locked cockpit door procedure, because he was observed there by a Hellenic Air Force F-16 that had been scrambled to intercept the unresponsive 737. 
Initially, the F-16 pilot could only see the first officer on the flight deck, slumped motionless in his seat, and unresponsive passengers at the windows, surrounded by dangling, and by then useless, oxygen masks. By this time, the aircraft had been flying an automatic holding pattern overhead its destination airport for some time. Andreas broke into the flight deck and sat in the captain's seat, reaching up to the front panel that controls the autopilot, presumably in an attempt to descend the aircraft. Sadly, very shortly after entering the cockpit, the 737 ran out of fuel. First one, and then both engines flamed out, and Andreas made several mayday calls. These could only be heard on the cockpit voice recorder as the radio was still tuned to a Larnica frequency that was well out of range. The descending airliner took up a meandering course and the fighter pilot on its wing tried to get Andreas to follow him to the airport. Now down to 7,000 feet, Andreas waved briefly but despite his efforts, the aircraft continued to descend rapidly until it collided with the hilly terrain about 20 miles from Athens. Although unconscious, some on the aircraft had survived the depressurization, but in the subsequent crash, all on board perished. The year before this accident, the NASA Aviation Safety Reporting System Office had issued Boeing the FAA and other aviation industry organization with an alert bulletin warning them of the high number of incidents in the United States when the 737 cabin altitude warning horn had been confused with a configuration warning. Incidents went back a long way, but no effort had been made to integrate the warning with an indication on the main warning panel. Boeing themselves had revised their checklist procedures in the year 2000 and they made further changes in 2005, but when the Helios aircraft was lost, changes to the flight crew training manual reinforcing the importance of the horn in relation to cabin altitude had yet to be issued. However, a year after this event, pilots were still reporting confusion three in February 2006 alone. One pilot reported, given the development and increasing sophistication of the aircraft systems on the Boeing 737 and its variants, it's noteworthy that the cabin altitude warning system has remained virtually unchanged for nearly 50 years and shares similarities with the Boeing 727. Why this system has not been tied into the Master Caution Warning System escapes me. Well, it escapes me too, but finally, Boeing learned from this and other incidents, and thankfully have now modified their aircraft with supplementary visual warning lights, but all a bit late for the 121 aboard Helios Flight 522. Well, they say that um, hypoxia is an insidious thing that uh, you just kind of 
start losing your cognitive abilities to think things through. And I've experienced this through uh, visits to an altitude chamber and just doing simple math and other basic things that a toddler probably, well, toddlers can't do math, but unless they're really smart, but you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Uh, you, uh, after the fact that you look at your little piece of paper that you've been given very simple instructions to, or problems to, uh, complete and you look and see how really cognitively impaired you are when you are experiencing hypoxia. So I've not personally experienced that, but, um, what I understand is that most people don't really realize how impaired they actually are. It's very hard to recognize those, those symptoms. So that's why the training is so important mm -hmm. so that you do learn to recognize what those symptoms are because oftentimes, um, well, most of the time, all of the time, it's specific to an individual, which symptoms you'll develop first, but it's often reproducible. So each time you have um, or are exposed to uh, a situation that would make you hypoxic, you develop the same symptoms. Yeah, yeah some of those. I mean, go ahead, Nick. I was going to say it's important that uh, those of us who are most likely to uh, suffer it um, get repetitive training because, of course, one of the functions, uh, one of the side effects of hypoxia is that you lose your short-term electrical memory. Uh, the memory that you retain is the long-term chemical-based memory. That, uh, and so if, you, if you've only experienced hypoxia just once, perhaps, uh, in your lifetime, then it's unlikely that you'll recall those symptoms. But the point about repeating uh, your hypoxia training is that it becomes ingrained in your chemical memory, which means you can recall it when you're starting to suffer. That memory will be retained and you can recognize the symptoms if you're alert to them, uh, which is the important bit, and which is why so many military pilots uh, have successfully dealt with uh, hypoxic situations and sadly why um, civilian pilots uh, often succumb. Uh, and there's, there's I, I was reading... I mean, there's a whole list of uh, dramas amongst private pilots who fly pressurized aircraft who succumbed. Uh, um, and part of it is because they, they don't go through the training. But there are training regimes out there uh, where you don't necessarily need to be depressurized. You can just be have the symptoms induced by replacing the oxygen in a mask with some um, inert gas like nitrogen. Uh, which will give you the same effect. So, sure, just decrease that partial pressure of, or not the partial pressure, but the percentage of the... Yeah, the percentage, the which has the same effect as, as the, the partial pressure that effect. you would uh, achieve if your aircraft depressurized. And for those who uh, pilots who do fly pressurized aircraft uh, um, and aren't airline pilots, or even who are airline pilots, uh, I would so... Um, you know, strongly recommend that if you get the chance to practice uh, real hypoxia training, it's absolutely essential. Uh, as I suggested, there are very few ways you can kill yourself in an airliner, but allowing the aircraft to depressurize or suffering from hypoxia or um, perhaps something else that uh, is insidious, uh, like smoke fumes, uh, something burning, uh, something foreign getting into the air on the aircraft, um, it's so important to smack that mask on and uh, and get pure oxygen so that you stand a chance of uh, recovering and dealing with the situation. 
That's a very interesting point you make, Nick, regarding the long-term um, chemical memory and the short-term electrical synapses or memory access. And the fact that I've only been in the altitude chamber and experienced symptoms of aerobic hypoxia once in my life. And that was when I was in the Air Force back in the you know, early 80s. And, you know, now I'm thinking, well, I really need to kind of do that again to kind of remember, or maybe too late for me. <laughs> but uh, I, I think rethinking the memory probably generates that long term. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it, because you've thought about it, you thought about it, you thought about mm -hmm. it over the years. I think the chances are you would, if you remember those symptoms accurately, yeah. you would be able to recall them. Um, but uh, the best thing, of course, is to, as we used to have to have a minimum requirement of once every three years in the Air Force, we had to undergo hypoxia. So listening to the show and doing the show is actually helping me stay alive, perhaps, if ever suffer uh, hypoxia again. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Also Probably helps not. you cope, cope with that, you know, uh, 75 miles of air pressure that's pounding down in your body right now. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's. Well, you know, there there are more than there is more than one type of hypoxia. We were talking about. Um, I don't know if that's the right term, aerobic um, hypoxia. Um, uh, keep going. I'm not sure what you're referring but, to. But uh, there is another type of hypoxia that uh, many of yes. us oh, yes, adults yes, yes. experience. Oh, right. yes. If you are that was some... the uh, the uh, the loss of judgment, I was actually going to bring that up mm -hmm. because not only do you have to recognize the symptoms because you're suffering from. Uh, an effect that is very similar to imbibing alcohol. In other words, hypoxia brings on a loss of judgment, uh, which is amplified. Uh, and uh, the chances are that you may not even want to uh, do the actions required to put that damn mask on. Uh, you may be feeling drunk and euphoric. Uh, some people feel down and depressed and just don't want to do anything. Uh, hypoxia has a different effect on people, just as alcohol does. But mm -hmm. one of the symptoms uh, you get from drinking alcohol can be very similar to the symptoms you get from hypoxia. Right. So, I mean, I guess the the mechanics of it is that you're you're displacing the oxygen molecules in your bloodstream, right? Uh, either the body's unable to use the oxygen because of the, effect of the alcohol, as opposed to not having enough oxygen or partial pressure of oxygen available. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Now, I, I am curious to know, uh, Steph, I don't know if you know the answer. Um, if you are a happy drunk, will you be a happy hypoxic person? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, I don't know. It's We're going to have to <laughs> not, do some research uh, on that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's the same ultimate effect is that the body cannot uh, use oxygen either because it is not available or because the body itself cannot use it because of metabolic changes. Um, I would think that the effects would be similar, but strictly speaking, they're slightly different mechanisms. So I don't know. It is interesting though, isn't it? Because uh, mm -hmm. some people get aggressively drunk, some mm -hmm. get very happy. And, and that's usually a consistent thing for people. People aren't, you know, either happy or aggressive. It's one or the other. Interesting, isn't it? It is. But, uh, the sad, very sad thing about that accident was that, uh, the guys themselves, the pilots, had three opportunities to set the, their cockpit up correctly and correct the position of their pressurization system so that it would get non-pressurized. Three opportunities. And two of them were checklist items. 
And that just brings to me uh, the concern about lack of checklist. Yeah, poor oh, checklist discipline. We uh, checklist discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may seem so tedious when you're doing it again and again, particularly for someone in, uh, who does, like you, multiple sectors in a day. Yeah reading the same checklist over and over. It's so easy just to kind of say whatever it is that you're supposed to respond with when somebody says pressurization panel set and, and, you know, actually look up and make sure that it really is set. Yeah. Yeah. It's that phenomenon of doing the same thing over and over and over again that you forget, you know, if you just did it not that long ago, your brain can remember the previous event as being uh, what just happened. Yeah, and, and you start repeating checklist by rote rather yep. than physically yeah. doing the actual check. You're just saying the words. That is a hazard uh, for sure. Yeah, and for, for me, it's one of the great qualities of a good pilot is that they have discipline, self-discipline, that making sure that they actually do that because without that, uh, so many more mistakes would be made. And yeah. for me, I do, um, so in my job, especially when I'm doing procedural things, it's often the same procedure or very similar procedure every 15 minutes starting over again and there's a whole procedure that you go through to do it um, all day all day oh, every God. 15 minutes and you know you get to the end of the day and it's i never have a problem with myself asking or someone else asking hey you know i just want to make sure i think i remember us doing this did we do that because there are certain protocols that have to be followed so you always yeah. want to double check well absolutely i have enough trouble remembering if i took the pill i'm supposed to take in the morning and I look at my pillbox and go, well, how many <laughs> I guess did I, I took it. It's yeah, not there. Up, didn't I? Yeah. Either the dog ate it or I took yeah, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. You know, we do these procedural timeouts. So you're basically, someone in the room is reading through everything that you're going to do for for the patient. And sometimes you go, do we do we do that this time around? Do we already yeah. run that, that happens, checklist? You know, in, in my environment too, Steph, you know, we'll be descending. And then did we, we did the um, descent check, didn't we? Yeah. You know, and then you. In those cases, it never hurts just to. No, look then we go, let's it do it again. Just do it again. Just do it again. Yeah. There's any yeah. doubt. 100% do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I love it when people do that. You know, uh, because uh, the first officer might go, um, I can't remember, and I go, well, actually, I can't remember either. So let's do it again. And mm-hmm. and when people say yes, let's do it again because they're committed to ensuring things are done properly. I have a nice warm feeling about that. It, it's the people who go, yeah, I'm sure we did it. Yeah. I'm going, well, I'm not so sure. Oh, now sure. I'm going to make myself to be at a bit of a you know, stickler because I'm going to ask the guy, no, 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 let, let's do it to make sure. Mm-hmm. And then I think like a bit of a fool. But I, I I don't actually have a problem feeling like that. No, I don't either. I mean, everybody thinks I'm a fool anyway. <laughs> um, so, you know, usually when you're doing it the second time, you'll you'll recognize whether or not you know, at some point during that checklist, you'll go, oh, yeah, I think we did do this, but let's keep going until the end. And Yeah. You know, it's it's like having the discipline when you get interrupted halfway through, and there is the the concern that when you go back to the checklist, you won't pick up from exactly mm-hmm. the right spot. You start the checklist all over again. Right. So, you know, uh, that kind of discipline needs to be built right from the ground up. And mm-hmm. that's one of my uh, worries that perhaps people aren't, people pay lip service to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going, nah, nah, nah. We're, we're in to an important bloody job to do that. That's why, those, that's why those checks are there. You have to make sure that they're done and correctly. It, it's so if they're easy. not, then it defeats the purpose of them altogether. 
And it's so right. easy to do, you know, because as you said, Doc, um, Dr. Stefan, Captain Nick, that the kind of flying that I'm doing, you know, if you do three flights a day or more, you know, after a while, you, you know, you all kind of blends into yeah. to one. Well, that I was this I, flight. Yeah. Oh, no, that was last Didn't flight. Didn't we do the pre-flight checklist? We did this already. Yeah, we did it did last it? flight, but not this yeah. flight, you yeah. know, so. No, I understand that very well because it's very easy to. Like what you were just mentioning. Yeah. Exactly. You, know, you have to do it constantly throughout the day. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, all right. Well, I get here at the end of the day and my brain is just fried sometimes. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> nope, I have spent all of the brain cells for today. There will be no more, no more logical thought. By the way, I did read the other day that uh, drinking doesn't actually kill brain cells. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Cheers. Are you sure? Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was uh, the last thing I was going to add before we move on to the next one is um, that, and this might be a silly thing, but there are times, especially, you know, the, these early mornings after a while start really kind of making you pretty beat. And, you know, you might be in the middle of, you know, the cruise portion of your flight and, you know, start getting a little bit sleepy, you know, like, okay, you know, I need to do something to stay awake. And, I, I sometimes look up at the pressurization panel just to make sure that the airplane is still showing the proper PSID or, uh, wait a minute, uh, Delta P um, on the gauge and make sure that the the airplane is actually pressurized. Yeah. Because, make sure you know, it's just you feeling sleepy yeah. and not, you know. Exactly. Is it just because of the really early mornings or maybe not getting as much sleep as I should or is it because... Maybe the pressurization system is malfunctioning and I'm actually actually experiencing hypoxia. And uh, thankfully, every time I've done that, you know, it's it's just me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That was me about an hour ago. So yeah. I, I need a I cup just, of coffee, please. Yeah. I have, to, I have to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. One with lots of oxygen. Yes. In, yes. <laughs> extra oxygen in my coffee. Extra oxygen with my coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I have to read this comment from Jennifer in the sure. chat room because it's hilarious. I'm sorry. She said, uh, my son just looked over at my iPad and inquired if this was the Colonel Sanders lookalike podcast. <laughs> I don't get it. Oh, I, like, I love fried chicken. <laughs> I'm sorry. Tell, Jen, tell your son. It's not funny. Yeah. I'm just wondering if he thinks that I also look like Colonel Sanders. Oh, that Sanders. would be sad, actually. No, <laughs> trust me. You don't look anything like Colonel Sanders. Okay, good. But- just check it. The two of us remaining in this crew, though. You look a bit like a chicken, though. <laughs> okay. And my daughter just tried to call me, so I'll need to call her back. She's probably wondering, you know, about dinner and if she's coming home tonight to take care of the kitties. Anyway, um, let's continue with, we're only on number four. Hmm. Yeah, Liz was so optimistic about us finishing this, yeah. all this feedback. That but she we've put been in. having a good really? discussion, I think. Yes. Okay. And I think there's going to be a good discussion from this one as well. And this starts off, this is Amar. Uh, hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, and the amazing mm-hmm. Dr. Steph. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Amar. Thank you. First off, I want to say thank you for an amazing podcast. I have no idea how you guys do it. Pumping out quality content every week. That's what she says. I think. <laughs> I think Amara has been drinking. Okay. Yes. He's suffering, suffering from hypoxia. hypoxia. 
from his. Oh wait, it's hypoxic hypoxia. I think the one that we experience. Yeah, there's the actually four different types of hypoxia. I just don't remember all the different. I know names. I had to look too because I, I, you know, I did that whole podcast with the uh, airplane geeks oh, yeah. about it. But off the top of my head, I can never. I have to look up the actual names for them. Yeah. But one is because you lose the partial pressure, or because your lungs can't transfer it, transfer it to your body. It's the other ones because or the next one is because you've actually replaced the oxygen uh, content with something else. Um, the third one is, um, uh, the tissues cannot use the oxygen. And then there's a fourth one, uh, which is more like stagnant hypoxia. So you're not getting adequate circulation, which is a little bit different. Yeah. And don't ask me what the actual scientific names are right now. I'd have to go look. Unless you use them like on a day-to-day basis, you're not going to remember. That is not, that is not in my field. (laughs) I know they exist and I know what they are, but. Okay, continuing on, Amar says, I've been bouncing back and forth between different aircraft types lately. When I think about the takeoff land, uh, takeoff briefing, we enumerate any number of circumstances that would dictate the necessity to abandon the takeoff. If the decision is subsequently taken, we accomplish the goal in two steps. First, by stopping the aircraft and then by executing the associated checklists. I've noticed different OEMs and SOP. So, um... What's the OEM stand for? I thought that was Original Equipment Manufacturer. I thought that's what OEM stands for. Yeah, they're talking about the manufacturers. Different brands of airplanes and then uh, standard operating procedures call for a different word to be used as the executive, virtually any word, be it abort, reject, stop, whoa, or holy shoot, uh, could be used as the trigger. Thank you. I love that. Inline censorship. Um, I have in one environment or another used all of the first three. Call me simple, but I personally find stop the least ambiguous or confusing of the three. The word in itself states exactly what we want to accomplish. That is to stop the aircraft. Once that most critical phase of the reject has been accomplished, we can take a deep breath and move on to the second phase. So my question to you all, abort, reject, stop, or holy shoot. Oh, I was waiting for the sensor beep. Beep. Okay, Sorry, I had to stop chewing my appetizer <laughs> here okay. and unmute the yeah. I'll fix it in post. Not the most eloquent feedback, but I hope you can dredge my intent out of my ramblings. Or you can dredge my, yeah, okay. Hope to see you guys soon. Cheers. And he says, P.S. I might have misfired an email to you with nothing in it. I wanted to share a YouTube video about speed check. I think your audience will find it interesting. And we'll play it. This is, this is great if you've never heard it. We're so. going to, um, let's. You mean there's someone out there who might not have seen it? I think there may have been, may, maybe a whole maybe, bunch of people. Maybe, maybe I'm going to play it. I'm going to play a little snippet of it. Um, okay. But after we discuss his question regarding oh stop stop okay i'll stop oh you're talking about rejecting and takeoff we tend to say abort that's what they expect us to say but oh really in the in the situation when it happens (laughs) it's whatever word necessary to indicate your intent and you would most likely and my airline and our standard operating procedures the only i nobody is uh, like my first, let's say I'm at the controls and it's my takeoff. My first officer is not supposed to say stop, reject, abort. He is supposed to, she, he or she is supposed to tell me what 
it is that they're looking at that is of great concern to them. And then I make the decision. Now, whether that's right or wrong, that's what we do at Acme. Um, that's and, what we do at Acme Red. Okay. Um, so, um, but when that I... Prevent, prevent someone from just going, ah! Yeah. Like, say something specific. Right. Yeah. Um, so, when the rejection starts, whether I'm at the controls already or I'm taking over the controls from my first officer, you know, I'll, I'll state with, you know, great exuberance that I'm aborting the takeoff. And it'll be very obvious from my actions that I'm attempting to get the airplane stopped. Uh, but that's the way we do it. But, you know, he makes a good point. Maybe, you know, stop would be the best way to do it. I was just having this um, conversation with my uh, physical therapist, of all people, um, for <laughs> take off uh, rejection procedures. No, but the oh. words that you use when you want something to stop. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, to be honest, I can't even remember the word that she uses because we were talking about needle based procedures, which just use it as a uh, a uh, stand in for aborting a takeoff. Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing something and you need to stop it for some reason. In this case, it's because it hurts. Um, but you want to make the intention very clear that you want the person to stop what they're doing. Um, I actually do use the word stop. I will tell my patients, if you want me to stop what I'm doing, you say stop, I will stop. That's it. Done. Mm -hmm. um, if I hear that word, done. If I hear anything else, I will ask, I will prompt, I will see if we can do something to make it different. And she said, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense because that's actually what you want, what you want the intent to be communicated as. You want it to be stop, mm -hmm. not oh, hey, you know, something else, something that's easy to remember, something that's effective, something that gets your point across. Um, and I think it works good in this situation. But I also think as long as everyone's got the same training and everyone is on the same page, you know, here we're going back and forth between a couple different aircraft types um, and there's different training across the board. Um, I think that's where it can get really confusing potentially. And, you know, honestly, in that situation, when you encounter a situation where you know something really bad is happening and I have to stop this airplane, you know, who you're knows just, what you're actually going to say. <laughs> well, we, that's, that's what I mean. I, th I think a lot of times th that's why this training is so important because yeah. I wasn't kidding about the person who goes, ah, you know, sometimes that's all your brain can manage when you see something unexpected, mm -hmm. um, which these things are always unexpected. You're not expecting to have something happen where you're going to have to abort a takeoff, reject a takeoff, stop a takeoff. Um, even though it's always there in the back of your mind and you train for it on a day-to-day -day basis, that's not the first thing you're thinking about. Right. The You never expect the unexpected. Exactly. No one expects this. So we have a very, very strict um, series of commands. And in fact, almost all our verbal procedures are very strict and laid down. And you are supposed to use... Steph, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> so, <laughs> she, she's stuffing her face with something. <laughs> Nick, you're oh, supposed to ignore to, those video thumbnails. I was to make it, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> if you listen to the podcast, I don't apologize. That's the second time that Steph has, has distracted yes. us. Absolutely. Something, like a picture. I really did not mean to this time around. I really just thought that was going to be something simple to take a bite of. It's stuffed mushrooms. And it was very um, juicy <laughs> and yeah. difficult to take a, you know, discreet Squirting bite all out of your of. blouse. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so, it was not, less than elegant if you were watching the video. Yeah, yeah, it was. <sighs> Sorry, yeah. my apologies. Okay, let's just it's, pretend like that didn't happen. <laughs> it, you so, know, on yeah. the rejected takeoff scenario, we have, you must say one of two words. 
So if there's any doubt as to whether the, the takeoff should be uh, discontinued or continued, you say stop or go. In other words, you must make a, a decision. Otherwise, the first officer may think you're incapacitated. It may be incapacitation mm. that is physical, or it may be just mental incapacitation. Yeah, effect. through the startle effect, you're unable to make a, a suitable decision. So if you don't enunciate one of those two words, it's quite likely that the bloke sitting beside you will do the right thing, which is take control of the aircraft and do what he thinks is correct. So so we say stop or go. Uh, and uh, I, personally, I think that's, that's the clearest and least uh, ambiguous. unambiguous yeah. Yeah, exactly, right, um, come on, set of commands. But of course, other airlines have different procedures and they've successfully flown safely for years. But uh, personally, I, I really like the way our company does that. Yeah, that's a, I, I agree. I like all of the logic behind it. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm still choking on that. <laughs> <laughs> all choked up. Well, hey, before we move on to the next piece of feedback, um, let me set up this little audio snippet from the video uh, to which Amar was referring. And, and I think we've talked about it on the show at least once, maybe more uh, where a SR 71 Blackbird pilot was giving a talk somewhere and he was relaying or relating a story that occurred with himself and his backseater on the SR 71. And the first thing uh, they said so they were doing this long flight and they were with, I think Los Angeles center and they heard someone on the radio say uh, Cessna November, so-and-so and so-and-so uh, could you, uh, you know, give me my ground speed readout to you know, asking the center to uh, let him know how fast he was going. And I think the answer that this guy gave, um, Major Brian Schul, uh, 90-something knots. And then shortly after that, a twin beach comes on and asks the ATC controller or the air traffic controller the same question. Uh, could you give me my uh, ground speed? And I think it was something like 120-something knots. And that's where the video continues here, and we'll listen to the rest of it. Pretty amusing. And right after that, a Navy F-18 out of Lemoore popped up on frequency. And you knew it was a Navy guy because he talked really slick on the radio. <laughs> Center Dusty 5-2 speed check. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Dusty 5-2 has a ground speed indicator in that million dollar F-18 cockpit. It's right there in the heads up display. Why is he calling Center to broadcast his speed? Uh, I get it. We are just the meanest, baddest, fastest military jet in the valley today. We're taking our little Hornet jet over Mount Whitney and ripping across Death Valley. We want everyone from Fresno to the coast to know what real speed is. And you can almost hear a little, a little glee in the controller's voice like, we have put an end to this. <laughs> Dusty 5-2, we show you 620-620 knots across the ground. And it was that across the ground. See that little knife like, I hope nobody else has the nerve to get on frequency now. And there wasn't an airliner from Seattle to San Diego that wanted to be next on freak. It's sort of an etiquette thing amongst flyers. 
and a 12-year-old was reaching for the mic button. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, wait, Walter's in charge of the radios. I flew single seat all those years, but I'm in the family model now, and I, I want it. No, it's the Navy. They must die. They must die now. And I, and I thought, no, but if I do, I, well, I'll upset Walter, and I want us to be a good crew. And I, at that moment, I heard a click of the mic button in the back seat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Walter and I became a crew at that moment. His best innocent voice, L.A. Center, Aspen 3-0. Have you got a ground speed readout for us? <laughs> you could almost hear a collective gasp on Freak, like, oh, the poor fools didn't hear the previous transmissions. Oh, they, they got crushed like a grape. It's, it's just a pilot thing. But Center had to give you that same voice. Aspen 3-0, we show you 1,992 knots. <laughs> Cross the ground. When I knew I was going to like Walter a lot is when he came back and said, Senator, we're showing a little closer to 2,000. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we did not hear another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. The king of speed lived, the Navy had been flamed, and a crew had been formed. For just a moment, it was absolutely fun being the fastest guys on the block. <laughs> I love that one. Me too. She's got a great way of telling that story. Yeah. Air crew bonding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was good. Very good. Okay, I will put the uh, actual link to the full where that story starts in the show notes. You can watch uh, Major Brian Shule um, on stage relate the story. Now, uh, Nick Camacho uh, oh, yeah. has a question. I forgot. Uh, yeah, he asked us to go ahead nick well he's asked uh to tell uh, him how often we have to abort how many times in a year uh and i'm gonna go uh i've stopped once in my career so uh I don't know about once a year no uh that's once in my civil career 25 years so and that was a pretty slow speed abort because of a uh, um, you know, um, a pretty early warning of a problem. So less than 70 knots. So the, the auto brakes didn't even kick in. You know, we just dribbled to a halt in a very unsatisfactory and undramatic manner. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it's, it's a pretty rare event. Of course, in the simulators, you can be guaranteed we're going to get like three or four every six months or so. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty practiced, but doing it for real? Nah, pretty rare. I've never had a high-speed abort, and, I mean, I don't even remember the last time I even had a low-speed abort. I don't think I ever as a captain for myself. Yeah, that's that's how rare they are, because, quite honestly, uh, you know, the systems are designed and the procedures are there. Uh pardon me, to uh, to make sure that we do a successful takeoff. And it, oh, I, I said burpee, that beer, that was <laughs> the same. Bless you, Dick. Red well steam lager, I won't be drinking that again. <laughs> Blame it on the beer. Yeah, sorry. There you go. Still choking on the mushroom. Yeah, how's that mushroom going? <laughs> still burns a little still. Anyway. Burning mushrooms. I wonder what kind of mushrooms you're eating there, Stu. 
Magic. I'm beginning to I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> they were delicious. No, more a function of it just didn't make it down the right pipe as it was Ooh, juicier than I intended. Do you have a mushroom pipe? That's clever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just digging my hole here and creating <laughs> evidence. Um well, because of your mushroom issue, I won't have you read this stuff. Perhaps. Oh, no, it's okay. That actually might help clear okay. things up. We'll see. Uh, Which five. one are we reading? Five. Okay. Uh, Brett has an update for us on Gatwick drones and police speculate uh, perhaps an inside job. It says, hello, APG crew. Gatwick drone chaos may have been an inside job, police say. Uh, saw this news story. Uh, he gave a link to, uh, I think it's a CNN article on Apple News. So he saw this story and chuckled a little to himself as he was reading it. The police are speculating the drone incursion at Gatwick was a, quote, inside job because the drone pilot seemed to have knowledge of the airport operations and had a link into what was going on. Uh, well, don't most aviation enthusiasts, aka avgeeks, have knowledge of airport operations? And by using apps, web pages like uh, FlightAware or FlightRadar24, it's easy enough to see the traffic patterns currently being used at almost every airport in the world. Interestingly enough, when I looked at Gatwick on Flight Radar 24 while writing this note to you, I could zoom in enough on the airport ground traffic that I could even see the, quote, follow me trucks that Captain Nick has talked about on prior episodes. Now, who needs inside information when it's handed to you over the interweb? Duh. And the response, in typical fashion of any incident that threatens the flow of daily life, the management of the airport has spent a lot of money on an anti-drone defense system. I will avoid the opportunity to drone on about social and political issues. Most responses are a little like closing the barn doors after the horses have gotten out. But that's the way many protective measures or countermeasures are put in place in our daily lives. I'll stop there and leave the rest of the conversation to your crew. The story does make for interesting reading and gives people something else to chat about at the water cooler slash coffee pot. Cheers. Good day. Thanks for keeping us informed and entertained. He's got a countdown timer to AirVenture that he linked. And also, countdown days to his retirement. Well, that doesn't sound familiar at all, Brett. <laughs> 1,855 oh. days as of the date of the email. What is mine? I need. I don't want to hear Nick's. Um, Nick's is like minus 20 <laughs> now. It's <fine>. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's getting there. I'm trying to remember the app that we were using for that. Was it called Reminders or something like that? Yes, I'll back up. Reminder. <laughs> oh, boy. Here we go. Um, I have 1,704 days, so I'm Ooh. beating Brett. Oh, you're going to beat him. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well done. That's By half a year. Almost almost. 150 days. Mm -hmm. 151 that's days. like half a year, almost half a year. So, um, you know what? I know that this was an inside job because this guy actually knew what an airplane, what, what type of an airplane was. I mean, only insiders know that. Information. Yeah. Absolutely. You mean not everyone just stands outside and looks up and goes, oh, CRJ 900. You know, yeah, I still think there's a huge <laughs> amount of uh, confusion over exactly what happened uh, because, uh, you know, there's, there's no real evidence uh, other than some uh, videos taken on phones and that sort of thing, very poor quality. Um, that have been produced and certainly available to the general public about uh, exactly what was going on. And I think, quite honestly, it was all a bit of a cock-up. But um, there was undoubtedly uh, a, a drone there at some point. Uh, just, and I think they've... Uh, was there? They've, 
Well, yeah, I'm pretty certain. Uh, but um, I think they've uh, managed to put the fear of God into most people. So uh, I, I don't know. It hasn't happened. You see, I predicted that it might be a tactic. If it was being used, one of these uh, people who were interested in denying uh, airport use uh, as an um, ecological protest. Uh, yeah. Is that the right word? I think so, yeah. yeah. Then, I think mm-hmm. most of us kind of thought, oh, no, the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> yeah. Now everybody's well, going to be doing uh, this. Yeah, but it has, doesn't seem to have yeah. happened, doesn't it? There's not many copycats. It's odd. So, yeah. Maybe they're right. dumber than we thought. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe. <laughs> and Maybe. if you're one of those people, sorry, I didn't mean to insult you. Yes, you did. Yes, we did. Yeah, okay, I did. <laughs> well, if Jeff didn't, Nick and I certainly did. <laughs> hey, you know what? We're getting close to the end of the show, and we do. No. Yeah, I know. Um, uh, First Officer Craig, uh, who is an E-170, an Embraer 170 pilot, um, had uh, we're, we, we talked about that wingtip, uh, the E-170 wingtip scrape in Chihuahua, Mexico, and uh, he sent a us a wingtip head of Chihuahua. Yeah, was, oh, it, ooh, was, it, was it okay? Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, damn. Um, but uh, he sent us some audio feedback, uh, kind of as a follow up to our discussion on the show on which we discussed this. So here we go. Take it away, First Officer Craig, soon to be Captain Craig. Hey, APG crew, it's FO Craig here. I uh, just wanted to send in some feedback from uh, episode 370 and the uh, Embraer 170 that was uh, scraping the wingtip on takeoff down in Mexico. Um, Captain Jeff had uh, reached out to me for some info on if ALRM's uh, fly-by-wire, and as he said, uh, with my information that they are not, they are uh, traditional uh, cables to a... Uh, power control unit which then hydraulically actuates the ailerons um, to help you uh, roll the aircraft and uh, get it to turn but uh, I wanted to just throw out there I know you guys started talking about crosswind limitations a little after that in the uh, Embraer 170 175 on a dry runway our maximum demonstrated crosswind is uh, 38 knots which seems to me pretty impressive for uh, such a small airplane as is compared to some of the larger jets, but uh, it, in my experience, I have about uh, 1,950-ish hours in the uh, 170, 175, and uh, flown numerous uh, crosswind situations uh, throughout my career so far. And on takeoff, it's uh, pretty simple, uh, just about with any other plane, a little nose forward on the control yoke and uh, ailerons into the wind and uh, whatever rudders required to keep the uh, runway, or excuse me, the airplane on the uh, runway center line. And uh, sometimes you do have to put a good amount of uh, aileron control in as soon as you start lifting off just to make sure that uh, once you get that nose wheel off the ground that the plane doesn't start to drift to the uh, downwind side of the runway. But uh, watching the video that was on the uh, av herald um website of the uh, incident the amount of pitch up attitude that uh the plane was uh using to try and lift off seemed incredibly high to me um makes me think that maybe they weren't at their uh 
rotation speed yet or uh, maybe had the wrong rotation numbers and they were at what they had they were at the speed at which they had set um, but maybe it was too low for the actual uh, weight and of the aircraft in the current conditions outside um, I mean it's very noticeable that I had way too much uh, wing down into the wind or maybe that was uh, on the uh, downwind side so maybe they could have counteracted it I'm not entirely sure um, of the whole situation but as far as the uh, pitch of the attitude on the takeoff roll it seemed excessively high as well as the bank angle and uh, I have yet to have come across anything clo remotely close to what's seen in the video um, yeah, so that's all I got. Um, if you have any more questions on the uh, aircraft, let me know and uh, keep up the good work and look forward to the next show. Thanks. Have a great day. See ya. Thank you, F.O. Craig, for that. And uh, yeah, I agree. When you when you're mentioning the fact that the deck angle, the pitch attitude of the airplane at that point uh, was pretty pretty steep higher than normal yeah you're right i mean i guess i'm used to the airplane that i fly we have a pretty initial steep pitch attitude when we take off but that's very unusual compared to most airplanes so good point maybe they had the wrong numbers maybe lifted off too early or you know who knows really what was going on there i must admit i'm i'd be surprised if and well, only through my own experience if you drift far during the rotation because uh I don't know, we rotated about uh, three degrees a second. I think that's pretty standard, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we break ground very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you rotate and uh, you're off the ground uh, two, three seconds after starting initiating a rotation. You're really not going to drift far off the center line if that's where you started um, in a strong crosswind, even a very strong crosswind. Now in this case, I don't think it was so much the drifting off the center line is uh, like not compared to the uh, American Airlines A321 that hit the hit the sign, but uh, in this one I think they just ding dung dinged dang they uh, hitting the sign wingtip yeah on the yeah. runway no signs involved in this one all right so just roll bank more yeah. so than anything yeah but yeah I, I you know really hadn't thought of it until he mentioned the fact that the Seemed like they were really nose high at that point. So who knows what was going on? Maybe setting the wrong trim, you know, the pitch trim uh, for um, takeoff. Mm -hmm. And the thing just lifted off before it really need, uh, should have lifted off. Who knows? Yeah. Yep. Um, Nick, would you like to do number seven, please? At number seven is a picture, Jeff. Okay, that's why I picked it. <laughs> because, gave it to you too. because you're so creative with your distress. Yes. Okay, this is from Ron. Now, which Ron would this be, since I'm not absolutely certain? I would say it is Ron Swart. Really? Yeah, it says Ron, Ron Swart? Swart. What a marvelous guy. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. Uh, this, uh, this is good. Now, obviously, um, Jeff flies for Acme, and I fly for Acme Red. None of us fly for Acme Bar. <laughs> Um, no, but I think that's the next business venture. Yes, I think you're right. Someone's beat us to the. No, no, uh, and this is this is the this is the podcast and the airline to own Acme Bar. <laughs> He's managed to find 
uh, and a place called Acme Bar in Fort uh, which, Wayne, Indiana. Is that where it comes from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, Fort Wayne, India. Is that where the Indians come from in Indiana? Mm-hmm. Um, no, no. I mean, well, okay. some. Um, not all. Uh, and uh, I, I can see in the bottom left-hand corner of this picture of the Acme Barney because he's taking a picture of the uh, bar sign, which is brilliant, and I love it because that's just what we need uh, in our show is, uh, uh, is more alcohol. Um, <laughs> is, uh, is it, it says CE1041. Is that so? I'm assuming Acme Bar since... 1041. That, I think that's it's a, a ni- 1941. 19. <laughs> There's, that's, that's a nine, not, not a zero. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that would be pretty old nine. for Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah. See, I was assuming it was like a British bar, most of which have been around since, you know, the 10th century. Mm-hmm. No, ni- 1941 is a, is a decent amount of time for a bar to be open in the, the in US. America, perhaps, yeah. yeah. Uh, so actually, that's that's a really good bar, and uh, I I think uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, the Acme Bar, is going to be uh, on my bucket list. Please, you guys should probably stop there on your way to Oshkosh. Oh, can you know, we, we actually? That, that's, that's possibly doable. I think. I think oh, doable yeah. for can you. we do that? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> That'd be fun to get yeah. a selfie in front of the Acme Bar. Oh, absolutely, the Acme Bar. Yeah, wearing <laughs> Acme T-shirts. <laughs> We'll have to uh, look into the possibility. Please, please. Okay. I'll, I'll plan your. Uh, We're never going to make it to Chicago. <laughs> or, you're never getting to Oshkosh. Or Oshkosh. So you're going to have to stop it. Well, we'll just have to leave a day earlier than we uh, planned to. Okay. Hey, Steph. Yes. Let's. Uh, you want to do number 10? 10? 11? 10? Oh, I thought it was 10. Yeah. Uh, 10. You're correct. This is from Woo-hoo. John. <laughs> Uh, book recommendation: Boeing versus oh, Airbus. This is but, a good Nick, neutral read. Nick doesn't care. Nick doesn't care. No, I don't care anymore. No. All right, he says. Just That's a quick what he note. Says. Captain Dana mentioned in episode three seventy the book Boeing versus Airbus, and I wanted to pass along my recommendation for the book. It is an excellent and detailed look at how Airbus grew into the powerhouse that they are today, and how, in a lot of ways, Boeing let it happen. It also discusses how airlines go about purchasing new aircraft. Um, it is a very well-written and detailed book, and I recommend it to anyone interested in learning more about the history of the Boeing and Airbus duopoly. Take care and safe flying. John Duopoly. John Hyde. Hyde. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I played Monopoly. Du- have you played Duopoly? Oh, does that mean two of you have to play it? Is that Yes. That takes longer than okay. Monopoly. Yeah, it actually takes longer than Monopoly. Yeah, like twice as long. Yeah. It'll be there for a hundred years. Being Monopoly, how come you can get four players in Monopoly? I don't understand that. Well, one of them has to create their own Monopoly, create the Monopoly, and that's how you win. That's how it works. Force everyone else out of business. <laughs> Damn, all these years, well, I never realized. <sighs> but in Duopoly, two of you have to win. We just got bored after like six hours and just counted up how many properties and then decided who was the winner. No one ever wins. I know. Oh no! Someone wins. Oh, it's Steph, Steph wins. She obviously. always wins. It's the person who's cheating and stealing money from the bank while no one's watching. <laughs> the and banker it, wins again. Yeah. It's Steph. She <laughs> yes, always yeah, wins. Yeah. All right, that's so enough. I mean, not to play Monopoly against Steph at Oshka. She's a very competitive person. I I, I recommend not challenging her to anything. 
Well, even Chicken nugget contest, anyone? No. I'm, bad I'm staying out of it. Okay. With that, that's enough. We've subjected you to enough. I just gone past midnight. <laughs> we have subjected the listeners to enough torture for this show. We're going to save the rest of the torture for the next show. <laughs> and uh, We have more torture for you. We do. We have plenty of it. Yeah. And that was me telling uh, Liz that I thought we'd get through tonight. No problem. I thought we'd well, easily do that. You had to say it. Yeah. That was a lot she had in there. Got admit. We usually get like eight to ten pieces of feedback accomplished per show. Why did I think Fort Wayne was more towards the center of the state? You could still do it. Mm, yeah, it's kind of in the northeastern of of part, isn't it? Yeah, it's anywhere near the uh, United States Air Force. By the way, I've been told off for calling it USAF. Mm. Uh, is it anywhere near the United States Air Force Museum? Yeah. Do, it's not terribly far. A couple what? hours. In, nope. in American terms. What, what, yeah. So you're saying somebody told you that USAF is the wrong thing to say? Yeah, I got told that no, no one ever. We've never heard USAF. No, no, I've heard, I've heard people. Uh, I was in the USAF. Oh, right. Okay. It's not a common well, thing, but I've heard it. Okay. Because so. I said, look, look I've, uh, you know, in our military, we use it all the time yeah. when we're referring to you guys. I, uh, maybe it's just the, these are new generation people that have never heard it. Yeah. Millennials Two hours, or something. 10 minutes driving. Oh, it's, not, it's not long. Two hours and 10 minutes. From Dayton, From Dayton to Fort Wayne? Yeah. And but then, then you Fort have to kind Wayne, of would you go through up to I, Then up to like South Bend and over okay. to Chicago. Yeah, yeah we, that's possible. Instead of, instead of through Indianapolis. Just I've never been to South Bend myself. So. Hmm? Just to get a picture in front of a bar sign. <laughs> yeah, we, yes. we might have to rethink that one. <laughs> Look, okay. you went I mean, through... it's dedication and commitment to the... The Acme brand. Yeah. You went through Winslow, Arizona twice, Jeff. On I know. Way. And I did you get a picture at a corner? No. And another no. corner in Winslow, Arizona. Yeah, he went through it twice. Yeah, I've well, been I didn't there. really go There's through no reason it. to stop. Really. Look, you just need to get a picture by the corner. There's even some I, statues. I there. was I was behind my schedule at the point. And actually there was something going on with my car that distracted me. And then I realized a Several miles past Winslow. Oh, darn it. I meant to stop. Oh, well. <laughs> next time. I promise. Oh. There'll never be a next time. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. It's time to stop the show. So, stop. <laughs> Abort. Uh, thank you reject. again for, yes, reject. I'm um, rejecting so your many, abort. So many. Holy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Beep. Uh, thank you for listening and downloading our podcast. Wait, you think there's anyone still out there? Well, there might be some people listening to this after the fact. <laughs> Who follow the possibility? <laughs> the subconscious might still be yeah. registered. <laughs> All right. So, if you are interested, and we're not sure why you would be, but if you're interested in learning more about the show, you can head over to airlinepilotguy.com. And there's lots of stuff on that site. I'm not going to go through all of it. But uh, one of the things that's really nice is the APG library. And we that last book that uh, Dr. Steph was talking about and Mr. John Hyde had recommended, Boeing versus Airbus, is in the APG library. Because I have a note here that's highlighted that says, this title has been sent to Tiffany for inclusion in the APG library. So that's one of the places you can go on the site. And uh, you can also go to Plain Tales which has its own page and is its own standalone 
podcast if you want to subscribe to that. If you want to avoid all this other stuff and, you know, just listen to the plain tales, that's the way to go. And uh, much more stuff there. And we're also on the social meds. So, Steph? Social media. Uh-huh. Or as Jeff now calls it, the social meds, because <laughs> apparently he's down I'm with hip. the cool kids. He's hip. Yes. Kids. <laughs> we are on Twitter. You can head over to twitter.com and search for at APG crew. That is our handle. You can find our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of the page. Feel free to interact with us and other community member community members there. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Lots of good community interaction going on there. Uh, articles being shared, folks planning uh, get togethers occasionally, information about meetups. And for more on that line of uh, things going on, I will throw it over to Hillel. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or... Send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel, and until next time, oh, before we go, another round of applause for our producer, Liz Piper All in right. Toronto. Thank you, Liz. Good job. Thank you for your optimism. We do Keep us on track. Yes. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Good day.